Cain is his protector and is his caretaker and is the person who always fights to make sure that Tom is okay, as okay as possible. And unfortunately, Tom is just never that okay. <laughs> X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to, oh my goodness. <clears throat> Welcome to, oh wow. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of homo superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and today my voice is really shot. This is going to be kind of a raspy, husky, like Janis Joplin moment on Cerebro, and I'm just going to try my best here. But I am here today with journalist Owen Higgins. Owen, I was Googling you to like make a bio and put it together, and unfortunately your Wikipedia page is about Sir John Patrick Basil Higgins, known as Sir Owen Higgins, who died in 1993 and was a judge of the High Court of Northern Ireland, knighted in 1988. So that seemed probably not to be you not me he was also the target of an unsuccessful ira bombing that part is relevant to the black tom of it all we are here to talk about thomas eamon cassidy black tom i love this character he has had a bit of a glow up in terms of prominence in the era of krakoa he's a member of x-force it's his first time on one of the heroes teams uh like hero question mark yeah. in the case of x-force i'm excited to trace through his history with you i'm also excited to have you on the pod owen is a respected journalist he is a friend of friend of the pod spencer ackerman who you all know Owen, i'd love for you to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself because when we get into journalists who are not Trish Tilby or Manoli Weatherell, my ability to describe their CV is not quite as, as potent as I'd like it to be. But why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I'm a journalist and writer. I kind of stumbled into the field like seven years ago uh, through a number of events that were not the normal way to kind of get into it. And Twitter, social media helped a lot to get me there. I've written for all kinds of different places, Intercept, The Appeal, Washington Post, The Nation, etc. Right now, I write about tech for Morning Brew, uh, their tech vertical, uh, IT Brew. And I'm wrapping up a year run on a podcast of my own that is going to, I don't know when this is going to come out, but it might already be over. This will come out around Thanksgiving, I think. Okay, yeah. So there'll be another week still but yeah i just i get to write for a living which is really fun and pretty much what i always wanted to do my entire life so mm -hmm. and a hard thing to get to do yeah especially in today's media landscape yeah it's tough it's a grind but i think it's worth it so yeah that's pretty much me well thank you for being here you know it's a real oirish episode of cerebro when my guest is named owen but it's spelled eoin yes you... <laughs> we talked about doing this quite some time ago and i'm excited about it i'd love to hear a little bit first about your origin story with the x-men your history with this franchise why you love 
this stuff. You reached out to me, which was very, I always appreciate when like someone I am familiar with already is like, hi, I'd love to be on your show. I'm like, ooh, I love that for me. So I'd love to hear about your X-Men origin story. Yeah, yeah. So I am dual national with Ireland. I was born in America. I am American citizen, but I'm also an Irish citizen. Ugh, I'm jealous. That's going to be important. I'm like one generation too far out. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Ah, uh, yeah. Because I looked into it. Oh, you did? <laughs> so it was like great. It was a great grandparent. My grandmother's mother, I think. Well, no, she was born in Massachusetts. So it was maybe one or two out, but it was like, we're very close to it, but it was like, not yeah. gonna, not going to happen. Yeah. You have to like, you have to have the right one and then you have like the right generation. And then you also have to like do it at the right time. Right. You know, if you had done it in the eighties or the nineties, you would have had like a better, I think better luck then. Yeah. I just feel like anybody who left in the hunger should just like, yeah. come on guys. I mean, I guess it's a small Island and we have been fruitful here in these United States. So uh, Catholic problems. Yeah. Right. So like, I get that they can't physically fit every Irish American who wants to come back. And it would be a very plastic patty situation if we all went and we're like, I'm home. It's here. Yeah. I am. Place would be overrun. Like, uh, I'm here now. It'll be so bad. Yeah. It'll be so bad. It'll be a lot of that. But yeah, so my, my X-Men origin story, though, I started reading comics, I think, from the library in my small town that I grew up in, in the Berkshires in Western Mass. And I started reading like Tintin and like Asterix and then like graduated to like the old Ninja Turtles stuff, which was like hyper violent, but they had it in the little kids section for some reason, because I don't think that they ever like really read it. And if you're familiar with that stuff, it is just insanely bloody mm -hmm. and violent and just very disturbing. I mean, there's no like there's nothing else than just hyperviolence. It's just hyperviolence. So I started reading comics and I got in I eventually got into Marvel Comics on the time of the comic boom in the kind of like late 80s, early 90s. And I started reading like New Warriors and Guardians of the Galaxy back when Jim Valentino wrote and illustrated it. I remember I was like reading New Warriors and they had a couple of like mutant characters in it. And then I also I and I bought my first X-Men issue, Uncanny, which was, I think, Bishop's first appearance. That's a confusing moment to jump in. <laughs> it's, it was I was like, OK, so this is about like time travel. And like, and right. like I mean, I bought it because I thought Bishop was really cool. Like he was the well, man, and it's like the right king. after Claremont's departure and they're still scrambling to figure out who will write these books from now on. And it's like that weird interim period before the image guys leave. Right, right. Where you still like so Will's Portacio or Portacio or however you uh, yeah I'm yeah sure yeah that right, but I think it's Portacio. Portacio, yeah. So he's so Filipino. He, I think it's Spanish. Yeah. So he like illustrated those, and I think it was like right after Claremont left. Um, but I like loved the art, and I found it really interesting. And then Jim Lee started illustrating Claremont, and him launched X Men. Uh, and I remember reading that, and I had like. A little bit of context, like a little bit of knowledge, like I knew who Wolverine was and I knew who like a couple other characters were, but I was really like unfamiliar with it. And I was just kind of dropped into that Asteroid M story where Magneto is like angry because he's been de-aged with more. I know you've talked about like this is more mm, on the show like, yeah, yeah, millions yeah. of times, but like, so I was just like in, and then I remember like, then I read Executioner song, which is, like the big, first big crossover story. I like had never read anything like that. And then I kind of kept up with it. I remember I, I started reading like back issues, especially from like the 80s, 90s time period, like post Australia and pre Australia, like that time period. I'm not like I'm still not super like familiar with. 
Like that's well, like the one. That's, that's the one. The big, absolute yeah. best stuff. So we got to get you. We got to get you caught up. Yeah, I know you've been. I know you've talked talked about that a lot on the show. You got me like really, <laughs> really, really into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I know that a lot of people who came in in the '90s who listened to this show have gone back to read the Claremont stuff, and that is one of the things that makes me happiest because that's the material that really made me fall in love with this this world. And so it's exciting. I mean, it helps that it's been very well collected now. When I was a kid, if my dad hadn't had back issues in the attic, I would never have been able to just power through it. I mean, at first it was like, okay, the trade paperbacks have started coming out when I was like 12. And before that, it had been like whatever, because his nice issues are in plastic. So it was like, which do we have extra copies of in the attic that I can read? So it was a little bit haphazard but I managed to read most of it before I think a lot of people could unless they you know had bought it at the time but now you've got Omnibuy it's all digital which is really nice for everybody I mean you can go on Marvel Unlimited and read it all not for free but for the subscription which is not you know that onerous and so uh, speaking of the unlimited app guys today as we're recording this on the 21st friend of the pod jordan bloom's first x-men story is up on the unlimited app it is an it's a wonderful life riff where professor xavier wakes up in the age of apocalypse it's a christmas story by a jew as jordan put it which i think are often the best christmas stories most of our favorite christmas songs are my (laughs) jewish composers but uh, please do check that out the hit counts on those comics are something that they keep track of so it would be nice for jordan if it got a lot of views so when did you discover black tom cassidy so around like so around that time when i started getting into like the x-men it's when he was in like X-Force and Deadpool and stuff around that. Exactly. Time. So so X-Force 1 came out and I was like, oh man, like the, you know, the art here is amazing because I was, you know, like a middle schooler. I mm-hmm. no longer maybe feel that opinion quite so strongly. Everybody at the time did though. It was like a sensation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he was. And like, it's funny, like when I look over, I try and be like, diplomatic here i don't want to be like mean but like i look I, I like read the back issues now and i'm just like i just don't feel the same way and i don't know where i was like coming from with that like while like jim lee and portacio like i feel the same, like uh abacolo who's probably like my favorite artist i know that you're not like super crazy about his stuff but he's just i i still like look at that and really enjoy it but life all stuff doesn't quite hit the way that it used to I still think that that early stuff is strong in a lot of ways. I think that, and Rob, if you're listening, don't come at me. I'm just saying, I think that when he was young, there was an effervescence and kind of excitement to it that propels it, even when the anatomy is not that solid. And then I think as he got older and was incredibly famous... He's just less careful. And so it gets less and less. Like the anatomy gets a little bit stranger and stranger until it's the stuff that people now really make fun of. But I think that early stuff, for the most part, you know, it's kind of like an Art Adams, Jim Lee hybrid style that's really interesting. Yeah, I, I think that I think the, I think you're totally right about the action. Right. Like, I think but that's you can be- tell that the artist is is writing the plot like you can tell right. that. It's very different from the way that Wheezy and Claremont 
I mean, Claremont's a Marvel method type writer. He writes an outline, the artist draws it, and then he writes dialogue. So it's not out of the question to do that, but it's very different for the artist to write the outline, then draw the comic, then give it to Fabian and say, now write dialogue. That's just like a very different mode to operate in and is not really something that had been done before. It's a shift at this time that was very dramatic and is what led to Claremont and Simonson's departures from the franchise. But the Black Tom stuff is pretty memorable. I would say that for me, Fabian Nicieza is the essential writer on this character, much like with Juggernaut. And uh, his scripts, even in the early Liefeld story at the World Trade Center, the voice is very, very distinctive. Um, So yeah, so you met him, I would imagine, when he and Juggernaut are holding everybody hostage in the Twin Towers, which now reads very strange. In the sliding time scale, it must have been a different building, but yeah, it would have to be. We just, it would, it would we just don't be. worry about that now. Yeah, yeah, like the the World Trade Center, like he appears as basically like he's going to be the main villain for the first few X Force issues. He has Gideon, who is just like an incredibly powerful character and so confusing and a true. Dwy, like Gideon of the Externals, guys, is not really a character you need to worry about, but he will factor into today's tale. Yeah, he uh, definitely a character who could be like could be written to be something like huge because power set is so yeah. out of control. I would say after Celine and Apocalypse, who are like the ones that actually matter, he and Kandra are the two externals that they actually like made a go of making them into characters that mattered. It's just that Gideon and Kandra never quite worked. Like they, they just never, click. they never really stuck. And I think Kandra is great. I think Gideon could be really fun. They just have never had like the story that you would really want to make like an iconic villain. Yeah, I think he's too... I, and I don't want to like make this a Gideon podcast. No, but, this is not uh, a Gideon but, podcast, but maybe someday. Yeah, but I think my you know my one comment that just about like why I think he's never taken off is just that his power set is so overpowered that if you're going to have him in something, he needs to be like the main villain. And I don't mm-hmm. know if his character is like quite strong enough to like back that up. If that makes sense, like yeah, like it's just not quite there. And maybe it could be someday, but. Yeah, I think part of it that is just that, like, it is insane when Bobby DaCosta is walking around with, like, his new bestie, who is this Brazilian businessman who, for some reason, has a mint green high ponytail that no one ever comments on. And no other hair on his head. He just looks like that. Yeah. And then when the reveal is that he's, like, a weird immortal mutant, it's like, oh, my God, what a shock. It's like, well, that's not that shocking because, like, look at that guy. He looks fucking weird. But, right, you know, right. <laughs> like, you exactly. Uh, anyway, so, yes, I think maybe we should just go from the beginning. The thing with villains, because their appearances are not constant, you can kind of just hop from story to story which is fun. So Black Tom makes his debut early in the Claremont run. The Cerebro Claremont Marathon actually has just gotten to that. I am a little bit behind on the next episode of that on the Patreon because I tried to read on Sunday and my voice was a lot worse than it is now. So (laughs) sudden podcaster problem. And the next one is the Gene Becoming Phoenix issue. And I really didn't want (laughs) to... Incarnate, hear me, X Men. 
<laughs> so I was like, let me wait until my uh, my voice is bounced back a little bit. But in Uncanny, in not even Uncanny, in X-Men 99, we first start to glimpse Black Tom in shadow when a lawyer... Flarty, who is like the Cassidy family attorney, tries to get a message of warning to Banshee that something is afoot and sends him a letter that's extremely unhelpful in that it lures all of the X-Men to Cassidy Keep, which is not super great. It's a letter telling Sean that he has inherited the ancestral home Cassidy Keep. Flarty is then murdered by Black Tom in shadow. We don't quite see him yet. One thing that's interesting about Sean like inheriting the castle is like from whom? Because as the story unfolds further and we never ever meet any other members of the Cassidy family, it's like who died? Like they never talk about a father or an uncle or anything, which also leads me to the question of like the first big plot is basically about whether Sean or Tom will seize control of the family keep and a name and all of that but which of them is actually the rightful heir is not super clear to me because tom is older yeah so who was the lord before sean did they bypass tom because he's a criminal like what because you know it's sort of like how brian and betsy's brother jamie is older but is not usually in the line of inheritance, as it were, no. because he's a psycho. So, right. you know, like, <laughs> that's never quite been answered. I remember I read once that in one of the Marvel handbooks, they say that Tom lost the castle to Sean in a poker game, which is just something from a handbook, but is a funny way to try and no prize it. That would be like very Lando and Han of them, like over a game of Sabacc to like lose the Falcon. Right. So he says that he grew up there. Mm-hmm. They both did. Yeah. They both did. Yeah. And then there's, and then there's some other stuff about Cassidy Keep that I like really noticed when I was like, so built over a thousand years ago, rebuilt the score as it stood against every invader who tried to conquer it, ever proud, ever defiant. Which means that basically, like, it withstood the English. And the Vikings, right? Yeah, and, like, the, yeah. and the Vikings, which is, and that's that's pretty tough, like, especially for the, you know, couple hundred years where England just basically yeah. controlled, like, the entire island. So, obviously, yeah, I mean, if it's been rebuilt a score of times, then that definitely means that there was some damage done. Yeah, and I mean, I think part of the implication, at least for me, from the leprechauns being beneath it, is that it is a magical site to, you know, the she, and there's some kind of supernatural protection on the land also. We see the leprechauns intervene when the X-Men are first there, and I imagine they would also have intervened when, like, Ragnar of the... Yeah. Viking hordes is like battering down the doors, right? 
Also, the water looks pretty choppy around it. Sure it does. Doesn't really not look like you can not really there. assailable by sea, right? Yeah. And then you know, as you pointed out, it said that it's been rebuilt a couple times, so it hasn't always won, but clearly, nevertheless, it persisted, right? But at the same time, it's the only thing they own. Like their nobility, but their Irish nobility, which doesn't mean anything in the modern era after all the colonialism. So all they have is the castle. They're otherwise pretty penniless. That's something that you see with a lot of European and particularly British, Irish, Celtic characters in superhero comics being the poor relation because it makes them exotic to American readers without making them difficult to identify with. Like Betsy and Brian are also from less well-off aristocracy, like a house in decline. But with history. With a story history, you have heraldry, you have a castle, you have all of that, but like the other nobles don't like you. You're not hobnobbing with the Prince of Wales because you're kind of a, a black sheep or a black tom in right. this case. The name Black Tom is interesting it's never really explained, I don't think. I mean, it's just that he has dark hair. My interpretation of it is that it's a reference to the Black Irish, which is a pretty prominent idea in American, Irish-American culture, and that was once a prominent idea in Irish culture, but has kind of fallen by the wayside. The idea that is not actually true per DNA evidence that we've now sussed out but the idea in ireland was always that the black irish are partly descended from the spanish armada if you're not familiar with the term especially now that black people in ireland are also called black irish so it's confusing the black irish as it were is a term used for people like me who have more of an olive skin tone and darker hair i mean i have um, more olive skin tone because i have my jewish grandfather's coloring but my mother even is like a darker irish lady and she's like 90 percent irish or something like that yeah <laughs> so the key signifier is we have like dark circles under our eyes the saying in new york back in like the day if you were like a hell's kitchen irish lassie was that god put the black irish's eyes in with dirty fingers yeah and so when i told my mom once i was like i looked into like tear trough filler i was like i'm not gonna do it but i did google it because they can make that go away and she was like that would be like barbara streisand having a nose job like that's your heritage you're not allowed to get rid of those <laughs> i was yeah, like all right yeah. all right fine i'll just continue to buy a light concealer for days when I look particularly ragged. Well, the Black Irish, they are, we are, because I am. I, I, yeah, I, I, I mean, have that as yeah. well. They're the descendants, I think, of like the Celts. Well, that's what it really is that's so funny is that this idea was like, oh, you look like that because you're descended from the Spanish invaders. But actually, the Celts, I mean, if you go thousands of years back, the Celts come out of Asia, like as a nomadic tribe. Yeah. You know, obviously that's, I wouldn't call us representation. No, no, no. Just in the Indo-European sense, right? And then 
the actual reason that red hair and features like the one Sean has are so prevalent in Ireland is because Ireland was occupied by the Vikings for a very long time. And those features are actually Scandinavian features. Like when my grandmother, my maternal grandmother did a DNA test, she was like 11% Scandinavian. What the hell is that? My mother went Vikings, ma. Like, and I was like, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. She was like, it's not saying you're Scandinavian, it's saying you're Irish, but like DNA is not going to be that precise when you're an island that, I mean, it's like Sicily. It's like when Ariana Grande did her DNA test and it came back Algerian and she was like, how is that possible? It was like, well, look where it is. Everyone conquered Sicily and similarly, like everyone conquered Ireland. It's an advantageous seaport. It's an advantageous place to have a lot of natural resources to exploit. It's just a staging ground if you are particularly a seafaring culture that needs island outposts. It's why they were also all over Greenland. Like, you know, it's like here are these places in the middle of the ocean that we can colonize. And Black Tom also is fun as a phrase because it suggests, and this is the funny thing about Claremont's version of Black Tom that's very different from Nicias's, is that Nicias's Black Tom is gay. Yeah, definitely. Like very clearly, and is in a romantic relationship with Cain Marco the Juggernaut. I mean, I think that that's very, very clear in all Nicias's stories. When he was on the show, he said that that was his intention throughout the 90s. Claremont's is more ambiguous, and I'd be curious to talk to Chris about that at some point. When he was on Jay and Miles, Chris did, like, he referred to Juggernaut as a straight character, meaning, like, not a natural criminal. And then he paused and he was like, well, maybe I should rephrase that. So he clearly, like, understands that the vibe's always been there. But when you read that first story with them at Cassidy Keep, when Juggernaut leaps into the sea after Tom, it's very, like... It's Mystique and Destiny vibes. Like they say, dear friend, because we can't say. I love you love or, yeah, right. or, 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 or babe. Or, yeah, whatever. And- yeah. But in Claremont's conception, though, historically, and we see this most profoundly in the backup in classic X-Men about him and Sean and Maeve. Tom was seen as a ladies' man. Like, he is sort of this womanizing nobleman. He's tall, dark, and handsome. And Black Tom suggests the tomcat, right? Like a black cat who's wandering the alleyways. and Like, all the lady cats are taking a peek. And I like how you can marry those two interpretations pretty easily by saying that that was kind of a front, right? Because it's very clear that it's not a life that satisfies him. If he were just going to be a womanizing playboy why did he become a criminal and like because it's not he doesn't become a white collar criminal he becomes like a bank robber like it's very like something about him is unsettled and he steps aside so readily when he realizes Maeve's in love with Sean that I think it's easy to read his flirtation with her as having been more of a game or like, I mean, he clearly loved her, but like, I think he knows that they wouldn't be happy together. It's like he's, he's in competition with his cousin. And so right. that's why he's doing it, but he's not doing it like. Well, and there's a very homoerotic sexual charge between him and Sean also. Well, that yeah, that too. Yeah. On his part. I'm not saying that like Sean is responsive to it, but it always feels to me like that's also what's going on with them. 
And Maeve is a very, like, Eve Kosofsky, Sedgwick, homosocial triangle character in that respect, especially because when we meet them, she's been dead for, you know, 20 years. So we only ever get to meet her in that backup where she's enormously charming, a real Claremont dame, but... Yeah, with the motorcycle and, the, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, but unfortunately have been dead in the backstory since, you know years earlier yeah i don't think i ever fully read or if i read it, it was like a really long time ago that that backup story and then i read it for this and i think it's impossible for me to interpret it as him having really any romantic interest in any it. real romantic it just interest doesn't in read like it's that just no like, it reads to me and you know I, I, that's why it would be interesting to me to talk to chris about it because i just don't know what he was thinking but reading it and maybe it's because I had already read the Nicias' stories before I read it, but I'm just like, this is so obviously a closeted guy doing a bit to compete with his more masculine younger cousin who's like a cop and like, you know, is yeah. like the more traditionally gung-ho kind of guy in a way that Tom, who is more of a dandy never He's, is right right his power from his introduction he walks with a limp which we later learn is because of a fight that he had with sean when he told sean that Maeve had been killed while sean was away sean crippled him but so he walks with a walking stick and that in of itself is like a very dandy signifier right in this kind of story and not only does he walk with a shillelagh, which also is just like so Irish of him. Yeah. He has the power, the mutant power. It's evolved a great deal. People who've met him on Krakoa know him as like a plant guy, but that wasn't always the vibe. That evolves over the course of the 90s. Initially, his power was to channel energy, bioplasmic or whatever energy, through wood. He needed to use a wooden object as a focusing device. And so the shillelagh, the wood shillelagh was useful rather than a fancier walking stick that you might imagine, uh, you know, a self-styled nobleman using. He uses this more traditional object because it's made of wood and so he can shoot laser beams out of it which is helpful if you're going to be a supervillain. <laughs> right, right. And he, you know, he uses it as a, as a prop like that as well. Like, like he gestures with it. And it's like, it's very much a part of like what he's got going on. Mm -hmm. Like the shillelagh, he's very, he's very expressive with it. In the 90s, though, he, he no longer uses it, I think, right? Eventually. Yeah, no, because once he... Actually, let's just go because well, it'll well, the chronology will make it make sense. I think so. This is right after Jean has become Phoenix and is in the hospital. So Scott and the professor are with Jean, and the other X Men decide to go on a vacation because they're like, you know, we're stressed about our friend, but there's nothing we can do for her right now. We deserve a little R&R. &R. They've just gotten through the long Stephen Lang storyline that was pretty traumatic for everyone involved. They went to space. They had like a whole to-do with Sentinels. So the letter from Mr. Flarty arrives just at the right time. And Sean's like, oh, laddies and lasses, let's go to me ancestral castle and like, you know, have a nice Irish time. Of course, when they get there, they're like, huh, this place is kind of a shithole, but it's fine. Uh, <laughs> you know, they're like, well, the views are beautiful. Right. So it's Banshee and Colossus and Nightcrawler and Wolverine and Storm. That means that they don't have any telepaths. So 
they are caught unawares by Black Tom and Juggernaut's schemes. It turns out that the steward, Eamon O'Donnell, who takes care of Cassidy Keep and who later stories basically imply raised Tom and Sean, is being blackmailed by Black Tom, who is holding his family prisoner. They have outfitted the castle with all these death traps and stuff. It's a very campy little story. It's fun. It's a lot of fun, yeah. It's an excuse for Chris to dress Storm up all nice in a gown for the first time, and for all the men to think about how gorgeous Storm is. This is also the story where we learn Storm's backstory. When she has a claustrophobic attack down in the catacombs, we come to understand her weakness because the character needed a weakness. She was so powerful. You know, she had this traumatic experience as a child that has left her with really terrible PTSD, claustrophobia. O'Donnell doesn't warn the X-Men because Black Tom has his family prisoner. They go to dinner and fall through a trap door into the catacombs where Black Tom greets them and he's sitting on a little throne. Right. He has already the costume that he will be identified with all the way up to the present, which is kind of a vampire look to the point that when he first appeared on the covers for X-Force, Newsarama, I believe, or maybe CBR, one or the other, said that it was Dracula. You know, they were like, it appears that Dracula has joined X-Force, and that Percy made that into a joke on page because he had... Tom, uh, he had Kane get really drunk and offended that people were calling Tom Dracula. You don't look like Dracula at all, Tom. Like, I don't know well, what the yeah, yeah. about. The collar is quite high. It is a high pointy collar. And he also has like a little bat on his chest. And it's purple and red, which are very like vampire-y, you know, comic book-y colors. Hi, dear cousin Sean, how nice of you to, shall we say, drop in? Because they fell through a trap door. In case you haven't guessed, my muscular friend and I are the villains of the piece. I am Black Tom Cassidy. And I, students of Charles Xavier, my dearly hated stepbrother. Oh yes, we know who you are, X-Men. I am the Juggernaut. And together we too are going to do what no other villains in the history of the world have been able to do. We're going to kill the X-Men. The camp nature of the characters is here from the very get-go. My muscular friend, I mean my dad reading this as a kid was like, I always thought they were gay. Right. He was like, if you knew gay people, he's like, it's the same way that Mystique and Destiny were very apparent if you were familiar at all with gay people, even if it wasn't said. It's like, oh, they're a couple. That's interesting. I've never seen that in a superhero comic. And my dad's, what, 15 reading this? So it was not super subtle, even for the 70s. Yeah, it's not, it's, it's, yeah. But that's why, again, I'm, I, it, you know, it's funny. We, I was saying last week in the episode about Manifold and Gateway, my guest Kyoten and I were talking about Gateway and how well the Aboriginal spiritual stuff actually does match up with real beliefs. And I was saying the thing about Chris Claremont is he's a very instinctive creator. And sometimes when he doesn't intend something, it still ends up really resonating. And I think that's part of why his characters have endured now for 40 years, hundreds of them. Like he created so many characters and all of them still have their fans and will still pop back up again and again because creators want to play with them. I feel like for, I was listening to that episode and thinking about like, especially with like the dreaming and the different like dancers, like that was yeah. just, and then being introduced in that order was just like, yeah. And then think, and then so I was, I started thinking about like black Tom and Banshee and, and siren to yeah, like yeah, a yeah. limited degree as well. And like, 
I, w- I wonder if it's that, you know, he would do just like a little bit of research and maybe like, I mean, this is for him, obviously, to answer, but I wonder if it's something like he would just kind of absorb some of it and just not really think about it. And then it would just kind of come out the way that he, right. Because we're talking about like black Irish and Scandinavian. Yeah. And, and that's like who they are. Like they are like the two like main types of the two Irish types people. of Irish that you see, right? Like the redhead yeah. who has the Viking blood, but who the Irish perceive as looking more Irish and then the black Irish one who's perceived right. as an outsider, even though he is actually more Celtic, is... And he stayed. Black Tom is the one that stayed. Yes. Sean's the one that left. Yes. You know? And Sean's the one that may have wanted. Like, there's a lot of interesting stuff here. And, of course, Teresa, who Tom then raises, looks like Sean, which is something that I think is also difficult for him. It's like, oh my daughter except like i think what's interesting about his relationship with teresa just to jump ahead a little is that she always calls him uncle he could have told her that she was his daughter but he doesn't and i think that that i mean part like i read that in part as like teresa knows they're gay and so she knows that she's not their daughter (laughs) like because she's aware that they're like a gay couple raising her But that said, I mean, Rogue calls Mystique and Destiny both mama. And that's not, like, they made the choice, like, we're your foster mothers. You can call us mom. And Tom never goes there. Does he tell her that Sean is dead? Is that what he does? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, which is... And since Sean left forever and has been with Interpol... And that's a thing, too. Like, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's also, it's not super plausible, though, if you think about it for more than about 30 seconds, especially when later in X-Force, in, like, the John Francis Moore run and stuff, we learn that Maeve has family that, like, Teresa knows. So it doesn't super make sense because no. you think it would... But, like, you just have to hand wave it because this is just the product of a bunch of different writers fleshing it out over 20 years. Because it really doesn't make sense that anyone wouldn't have been, like... Well, but your father's just working in Paris or whatever. Like, you know, like and, like, and also with the internet, with the, you know, with the continuity moving well, forward. Well, with the sliding well, like, time scale yeah. now, yeah, it would just be impossible. It was a little bit more plausible in the 80s that he could have kept us from them. But so the big fight between the Juggernaut and the X-Men is happening. Black Tom attacks Sean. They have a very climactic battle that Dave Cockrum draws beautifully where eventually Storm manages to like snap out of it because a hole gets blown in the wall of the dungeons that makes her like snap out of her PTSD attack which you know helps the X-Men get the upper hand on Juggernaut. Banshee then manages to it's a very acrobatic this is like when this era of the comics is when banshee started becoming like really hot which he didn't used to be he used to be like i mean notably when he debuts in the 60s he is a nasty racial caricature of an yes. irish person even the first few pages of 101 are like a little yeah his face is not like, that great he's still it's not until john byrne that he becomes like sexy but dave cockrum draws him in a, a kind of fun, like acrobatic way here that is very live. He like does kind of a backflip. He's on the ground and Tom's above him and he kicks Tom and like flips him in sort of like a backward somersault. Tom goes, why you mad man? What are you doing? He'll send us both over the edge. And then Tom falls like 50 feet into the sea below. And Sean says, no, Tom, I only wish it didn't have to end like this. 
that's when Juggernaut flips out and is like, Tom, if you've killed him, like, he's my only friend. I'll never forgive you, X-Men, like, yada, yada, and leaps into the sea. And they both are just apparently dead. But, like, you know, it's a comic book. Like, you don't see the yeah. body. They're going to come back. Particularly, nothing stops the Juggernaut, right? And certainly... Nothing is going to stop the juggernaut when he is this determined to protect the man that he loves. And that is the beat of their relationship for the rest of time. Right. Black Tom is crazy and Kane is his protector and is his caretaker and is the person who always fights to make sure that Tom is okay as okay as possible and unfortunately tom is just never that okay <laughs> whenever whenever in especially in these stories earlier when it's juggernaut and black tom and in like the 90s before four tom really goes crazy which is after x-force but just like emphasize your point like like they'll be doing some harebrained scheme or something like that and it'll go wrong and then Black Tom, not being the juggernaut, will be the one who is kind of like disposed of first and he always gets hurt. And like every single, it doesn't matter what juggernaut is doing, like every single time, he just completely reverses course and like runs at Tom. Right. Like every time, every time. Suddenly, every, like our goals no longer matter. None of it. Like it's, and that's again why I think Nisiasis saw it immediately as romantic and wrote it that way because it's very different from how supervillain teams are usually written where they'll like, you know, they're like, well, I'll grab the money and run away then. It, they, they're much more codependent than that in a way that just felt deeper from the get go. And Juggernaut as, I mean, like something that's also interesting going back to like the hair color stuff, like Juggernaut is the literal redheaded stepchild, right? Right. And his red hair in America is not like the way that Sean as a redhead is like more Irish in the popular conception of Irishness. Kane being a redhead makes him more of like, you know, a whipping boy in like the New York culture that he and Charles yeah. grow up in. So there's something interesting about that too that like tom is drawn to this big muscular ginger guy in prison again it like underlines to me the weird sexual tension between him and sean that i think underpins a lot of their scenes together not that i think kane is like a sean replacement but i don't i think it's like it makes a ton of sense that tom would be attracted to a redhead but he would <laughs> like, gravitate he would gravitate in that direction yeah because that's what he wants is to be a masculine redhead like sean i mean that's like it's just a funny reversal of stereotype because to us like the reason that i think juggernaut is easy to read as as a gay character is because of his crisis of masculinity that is born from being not man enough for his father and the red hair for him is like a signifier of his femininity so there's just a lot and also his entire power his entire power well, is that. right like that like that, that is like, well, that's yeah. what i'm saying it's like my masculinity is in crisis so i'm a bully as a kid and then i become hyper powered super hyper masculine gigantic muscle guy thanks to a demon that i allow to like take over my body because i'm so yeah about like my own crisis i mean I, on some level both these characters to me it's like mystique and destiny where it's like okay you can like interpret the text how you want but i don't think they make sense if that isn't what's going on with both of them and the only time juggernaut's ever really been interested in women apart from a one date he goes on with celine in the 80s which like dating celine is gay right 
but also and also it's not a date he meets her at a bar but like apart from that the only time he's ever really expressed interest in women is in the chuck austin run which is where a lot of strange stuff happens with black tom and juggernaut it's i would say it's the least in keeping with their other characterizations i think the juggernaut stuff in the austin run is actually overall pretty good but i don't love the way it writes him and Tom. And I think part of that is that Austin clearly did not interpret them as a couple. Yeah. And I think that that changes the vibe pretty significantly. But we'll get there when we get there. When they do turn back up again, it's in X-Men 122, where they hire Arcade to take out the X-Men because they're like, we don't want to bother with this again ourselves. They're really annoying. But Arcade, as always fails i mean we hear that arcade never fails but whenever the x-men are involved arcade always fails and then they pop up again for a chris claremont story in spider woman this is the debut of siren in spider woman 37 this is 1980 i guess the you know the cover date's 1981 but i believe it's like a december 1980 release and this is where they are now seen with Siren, who Tom has given a costume that's just a lady version of Banshee's costume. So again, like the idea that he's kept right. this from her her whole life and like her father is now a public superhero. It's like, do they not own a television? Like it's just, it, it, there's a lot of this that doesn't quite work, but it's fine. Like just don't. Her, her father's a public superhero from Ireland who, who has the same exact hair and costume as her. And costume and as her. And yeah. the same, right. So it's like, uh, but so they attack the mint in the States because they're going to steal all of America's vibranium. And then they're going to either get the government to pay them to get it back or they're going to sell it to foreign interests. They don't really care. They just want the money. But the San Francisco area is now home to Spider-Woman, Jessica Drew, a character I don't have a ton to say about, if I'm being perfectly honest. <laughs> no. And they frame her for the operation, but the X-Men turn up because Black Tom and Siren register on Cerebro. When the police apprehend Siren, Tom decides, okay, actually, hold on. She's innocent. I forced her to do this. Like, he basically takes all the blame to let Siren go free and writes a letter for Sean and gives it to Teresa and explains that he raised her, that she's Maeve's daughter with Sean, and that he lied to both of them. It's like an apology to Teresa, basically. It leaves her both elated to discover that her father's alive, but also feeling very betrayed by the only father figure she ever knew. So that's like one of her driving forces through the 90s. She doesn't become a major character, though, until X-Wars. She shows up in X-Men to greet him, but then she pretty much immediately fucks off to Muir Island and because Sean is not an active member of the X-Men by that point. Then they pop up in uh, Roger Stern, Spider-Man story in 82, where they now have, this is the other thing that's like so gay is like they're, <laughs> they, they now like are operating out of like a pleasure barge, like a super yacht that they've oh, like yes, right. made really fancy. And this is where, we first see Kane 
with his sub helmet, which is like the most obvious thing that he just never thought of because the big thing with the juggernaut, for people who are unfamiliar, this is where the movie has got the idea that Magneto's helmet was immune to telepathy that now is part of the comics, but it's the Juggernaut's helmet in the comics that was immune to telepathy. So any Juggernaut storyline was always about the X-Men trying to get his helmet off so that a telepath could stop him, which is why it was not great when they were at Cassidy Keep without Gene or the Professor. But even then he had the helmet. Oh, right, right, right. Right, because we have an established to, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you know, like in the 60s, you can, yeah. But so in this story, we see that he now has like a tight skull cap underneath that he made from the Ciderac material or whatever, because Tom was like, you know, if you had a littler helmet on under the big helmet, then they couldn't just do that every single time we fight the X-Men, which would be good for us personally. But they also, <laughs> he also tries to like kidnap Madam Webb, the precog to force her to make good calls for them on like what to rob spider-man intervenes juggernaut gets thrown into a pool of cement and is stuck in there digging himself out for months on end because you can't kill the juggernaut but that must have been rough honestly you can't stop him but you can slow him down quite a bit you can slow him down their next appearance which i truly love is in a marvel team up by louise simonson it's marvel team up 150 it is Tom's birthday. Kane wants to do something really special for him. So he goes back to the Temple of Ciderac in Korea and gets the jewel that gives you the Juggernaut's power and comes to New York with the gem in hand and gives it to Tom at his party where like all of these like sexy ladies are like, Again, Tom loves to put on a show, right? Like, there are all these women, like, fawning over him, but you never get the sense that he's going to actually go there. There's also this guy with, like, a bow tie in the background. There sure is, well. yeah. There's lots of people fawning over, over old Black he's, Tom. He's, he's, he's looking very happy to be there, but he's just a little bit maybe maybe feeling a little bit uncomfortable. Yes. Because the juggernaut has just come in, so he's kind of like, I don't know. He's like, oop, uh, hi, my dear friend you know and then juggernaut walks in and yeah gives him the ruby gem of ciderac which terrifies all the women who run away because i mean this is like the this is maybe this looks like gay fetish art like it is one of the wildest things i've ever seen in a marvel comic he picks up the gem and suddenly his muscles begin swelling and expanding to like juggernaut proportions and his costume just tears open with a rip sound effect as his pecs and arms yeah. just like tear through it. He's like screaming and Kane's like, what's the matter, Tom? Don't you like it? And Tom's like, you just, he's like, this is scary. I don't like this. He's like, you just scared away all my guests. They start fighting <laughs> and that attracts Spider-Man and the X-Men. Tom starts to realize like, oh, I'm super powerful now, which actually I dig. But it quickly becomes apparent that, I mean, again, Kane is just not that smart and it didn't occur to him. Like you can't just have two juggernauts. Ciderac can't just like empower as many people as you want Kane is now half as strong, and they're both only half as strong as the Juggernaut at full power. The way it ends up resolving is that Rogue, 
who is with the X-Men at this point, steals Black Tom's power, which drains the juggernaut power out of him. And then once it wears off of Rogue, it goes back to the Ruby instead of to Tom, because it's like not really Tom's power. And so juggernaut grabs it. Kane gets all his power back and then hurls the gem into space (laughs) so that no one else can touch it. And they run away through the sewers Tom is unconscious and Kane is carrying him. I mean, is the implication because you, when you, you, we see them again. Tom's like, you can put me down now, Kane. I'm awake. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, you're okay. Listen, Tom, I'm sorry I spoiled your party. Forget it, Bucko. Now that it's all over, it was the best present I ever had. What a fight. Maybe we didn't beat those clowns, but we got some good licks in Juggernaut style. You may not believe it, Kane, but I always envied your power just a little. But now I know that having the power of the Juggernaut is like, and I think I understand you a little better. And that, my friend, is the best present you could have given me. Really, Tom? Really? But perhaps we'd best be getting back to the yacht. We may be a wee bit unwelcome in New York for a while. (laughs) So it's like, let's go back to the yacht and fuck like rabbits because I actually am now like all super juiced up because you shared your power with me and that was very erotic. So it's just like a fun little story. Wheezy was crazy for this one, but I love it. It's funny, honestly, that it's not a Claremont story given the body transformation angle, which is like very him. It's nice and self-contained too. It's like kind of a Spider-Man story as well. It's just, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a Marvel team up, right? So it works nicely. You get a little bit of of focus for them. And because Spider-Man has fought with Juggernaut and Black Tom before, they feel like a good bridge villain for the two brands or two franchises. So it works well together. There's another funny bit where the Juggernaut fights the X-Men again in Uncanny 218 and it turns out it was all a diversion because Tom is robbing the National Bank of Scotland which is very funny (laughs) Juggernaut ends up captured so they're separated for a while and then they come back together in as you said X-Force the first issue really of X-Force first arc is about Juggernaut and Black Tom they are hired by a businesswoman who is having her company taken over in sort of like a hostile merger. The people who are doing the hostile takeover, the corporations, include DaCosta Industries or whatever it's called. I forget. Yeah. Sunspot's father's business, which Gideon is now helping Sunspot control after the untimely sudden death of Sunspot's father. So it becomes diehard, basically. Like it's not subtle really it's like yeah it's very that it's diehard in the world trade center and what tom insists on is that this woman who hired them ariana jankos if he helps her maintain control of her company she will help find kane because in a thor story kane got like sent into an alternate dimension or something so like don't super worry about that and she manages to do it because like her company does like weird super science interdimensional stuff beto and gideon are among the hostages because sunspot has left at the end of new mutants to go back to brazil and work with gideon and all this stuff so it's been a subplot and in issue three the hostage situation, I mean, when you attack the World Trade Center, it does become news. That is a thing that historically is very true. Yeah, no matter what. X-Force see it on the news, and so does Siren. She teams up with Cable and his students to help rescue the hostages. This is how Siren joins X-Force. 
and becomes one of its main characters for the rest of the 90s run. Tom is really committed to this one, and it turns out he has rigged the building to explode. <laughs> he actually does pretty, like, he gives Sunspot a pretty good fight. This is the most competent, particularly without Kane, that Black Tom ever really comes across. Like, he is an effective supervillain here. He really does rock it, but eventually Cable chases him and he falls down an elevator shaft. And he's grabbing on to the side and he's like, you know, you win, you win, like pull me up and I'll surrender. And Cable, and this is like the tone setter for like X-Force isn't your daddy's X-Men book. He's like, what? So you can be arrested and escape again and then do all this again? I don't play that game, Cassidy. And Blacktop's like, what? And then Cable shoots him point blank, like in the face, like, <laughs> like, and in the chest and like riddles him full of holes and he falls down the elevator shaft. That's crazy. Like that is a fully crazy thing. But in the very next issue, we see that Mr. Tolliver, the mysterious enemy of Cable, who will later turn out to be Cable's son, Tyler from the future. Don't worry about it has hired Deadpool to rescue Tom and Kane and bring them to him to help him destroy Cable once and for all. That leads into Deadpool the Circle Chase, which is a miniseries by Fabian. The Circle Chase is where Black Tom takes on the form that I think is most recognizable to fans because it is what he looked like through the 90s. I remember there was an action figure. Tolliver and his scientists introduce these weird living wood fibers into Tom's wounds uh, and they keep him alive because they sort of grow and spread through his body. He has like an empty eye socket, like full of wood and he has like wood claws now and it like, you know, covers the wound over his chest and his arms. It means that he's now sort of like half made of wood, which has two valuable power up benefits. One is that it ameliorates his need to walk with the cane to begin with because his, you know, damaged leg is repaired. But the other thing is that now he can channel his energy blast through his own body, which means that it's like for two reasons now he doesn't need the shillelagh. He doesn't need it to walk, but also now he can just zap people, which is a much scarier thing. In classic Black Tom stories, if you get his shillelagh away from him, he's pretty helpless. Unless he can find something else that'll work, but... Exactly, but, like, it, it was a limitation on his power that he now no longer has. That said, he starts going crazier and crazier pretty fast. Like, <laughs> the minute that this sort of foreign material is introduced to his body. Tolliver is dead by this point, don't worry about it. Someday, I guess, I'll have to cover Tyler Spring, but today is not that day. There's this big conflict over his will. I mean, he's not actually, don't, truly don't worry about any of this. But like, basically all the people who used to work for Tolliver are now fighting over his holdings. And Deadpool is one of those people. And Black Tom uses his new, like, just point and click energy powers to, like, blow a hole in him. Not quite understanding how fast Deadpool regenerates. 
this is like in Cairo. They're finding like information on Tolliver's will and they fly back on a commercial flight <laughs> because they're like, you know, we're just going to plan it cool. And Deadpool sneaks on board and opens the emergency exit. And because it's a, this isn't really how planes work, but we all think it's how planes work because it's how planes work in movies. It depressurizes the cabin and sucks Black Tom out and Juggernaut in his classic Juggernaut way. Obviously leaps out after him to make sure that he survives we then start to see this plot developing i ended up looking this up because i was like i don't know where this is from because and black tom's not in it so it wasn't in the reading order but it's a tom defalco story in thunderstrike in 93 where juggernaut he goes to the company that tolliver used the science out and, and get and like steals Tom's case files because something has gone wrong. And we get to see that more in X-Force 30 and 31. This is during UCASIS run. This is a big siren story. Black Tom thinks he's dying because the wood is like rapidly taking over his body. Throughout this period it feels like as he did with the legacy virus storyline Nisiesa is using Tom's parasitization by these experimental wood elements as an allegory for AIDS there's a lot of stuff here where Juggernaut is trying to save his dearest companion and friend uh -huh. from a disease that's progressively killing him and there's a lot of to do about like whether they'll be able to see each other and like Tom crying out for Kane in the hospital, but like they're not together and like that kind of stuff that's done really well, I think. But basically the wood has like gotten into his brain at this point and he's gone pretty much crazy. The only thing that Kane thinks will snap him out of it is to see Teresa. And so Kane goes to Warpath, who is Teresa's love interest besides Deadpool, Teresa's a complicated lady. <laughs> um, go back to the Siren episode for more on yeah. her at this time. But they meet up at her mother's grave. She confronts him about having lied to her all those years, but doesn't want him to die. And he decides to turn himself in to Interpol because they will take care of him. And Banshee uses his connections at Interpol to make sure that, like, he will get the best possible care. That leads into Nicias's Deadpool series, where he meets Dr. Emrys Killebrew of the Weapon X program, which is a truly Claremontian-style name. God bless Nicieza for coming up with some of those on a regular basis. This story is sort of the last one I would say that is like classic Black Tom before Black Tom goes in a very weird direction. It's the last time that he's like recognizable for a long time. For like a very, very, very long time. Yeah. Yeah. Killebrew is the guy who experimented on Deadpool and gave him his like cancer regeneration powers. Kane breaks into prison to free Tom because he can't live without him and like doesn't think that anyone's helping enough and kidnaps the doctor as well because Tom is like, no, the treatment does seem like it's maybe beneficial. They decide that they're going to capture Deadpool so that Killebrew can extract whatever factor from his body could help save Tom. 
and Banshee and Siren end up teaming up with Deadpool. This is where like Siren's flirtation with Deadpool kind of also begins. They team up with Deadpool to try and fight Black Tom and Juggernaut and the mercenaries that they've hired, which immediately sets Tom off because he doesn't like when Teresa's in a dangerous situation. He's not happy that she's with X-Force. I mean, you know, eventually one of his minions brings him Deadpool's hand, which was cut off in the fight. And Tom cuts off his own hand because it's like made of wood at this point the wood is just like creeping all over his like entire like all of the kind of like i guess like softer inside parts of his body all of the soft tissue has been yeah. is like being replaced by yeah. wood yeah and so he cuts off his own hand and replaces it with deadpool's and deadpool begins regenerating into him it makes Tom suddenly able to feel again. It stops the parasitization of his body, but also like restores his nervous system to some extent because like he couldn't feel anything anymore. That's part of why he was going crazy. Unfortunately, being full of Deadpool cancer also starts to make his pain receptors fire. Like he is in constant agony. So it isn't really working out. And while his parasitization by the wood symbiote is halted his brain just fully starts collapsing under the strain of like fighting that infection off while it's actually interesting because it's not unlike cable and how like cable has to use his telekinesis to constantly keep the techno-organic virus from overtaking him and that's why cable isn't as powerful as say nate gray or as rachel frankly by the end of the miniseries, Deadpool and Sean and Terry track him down and Black Tom beats the hell out of Sean, but Deadpool manages to defeat him and convinces Kane to let them take Tom and figure out a way to process all of this without further breakdown of his body and mind. Kane promises, like, as soon as he's well enough again, I'm going to break him out again, just so you know. But um, he lets Interpol take Tom again. Yeah, just, just get him better first, yeah. It's this struggle where, like, he constantly, he doesn't trust them and he doesn't believe that they're doing anything to fix the problem, but he also can't do anything himself. And so it's this very frustrating thing that, again, I think was meant to parallel the AIDS crisis in the sense that the medical establishment isn't doing enough and they won't let me see him, but they're doing something and I can't just sit here and watch him waste away and die. So yeah, that's kind of their extended beat over and over again. There is, the, you know, there is like one like other interesting layer of it too, though, which is that like in order to have this done, like Tom had to go to Interpol, like not to Sean's shield, people. Right. Yeah. Not the CIA or the KGB or, you know, not the KGB wasn't around at this point, but like, but yeah, I get what you mean in Marvel. They basically are still. Yeah. Like, right. Right. Like that Hydra, not aim. Like, no, he has to go to Interpol, which is like, and I know that I know you guys covered this in the Banshee episode, but like, you know, that's a choice for an Irish character to go work for Interpol. And Black Tom seems like kind of like the like the other side of that kind of impulse. And to have him have to do that always kind of makes me feel like a little like it's just adding it's just adding another layer to it, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's more of a it makes it harder for Tom to accept that help. It makes it harder. It makes it more of a betrayal whenever Kane allows Interpol to take him 
which strains their relationship. It's interesting. Because if he is Sean's decision to like to go to Interpol is kind of like him. I don't know. There's like a really strong, like no snitching kind of culture in Ireland that comes from being occupied for so long. Right. And so part of the conflict between Sean and Tom, I've always thought was that, you know, we see that Tom has supported the IRA mostly for financial gain, but also I think because he is opposed to the occupation, Sean working with European police forces is something that I'm sure pisses him off. Yeah, he's on the other side. Especially when being with them is what meant he wasn't with Maeve when Maeve died. Yeah, exactly. You know, and like whether or not Tom actually wanted to marry Maeve, she was his best friend. The loss of her is very, very deep for him. And it's symbolically that Sean left Ireland to collaborate yeah collaborate that's the word i was looking you know for. yeah and she paid for it and of course she paid for it in an ira bombing which of course makes tom feel because I mean, it's like did tom fund the bomb that killed mave possibly right like there but he needs to displace his guilt for that onto sean so it's part of their complex interplay but the fact that interpol are the ones who are then put in charge of whether Tom lives or dies in this 90s period is just really difficult for him emotionally. And it's not a beat that really resolves, unfortunately, because what happens next is his pivot into Generation X, which makes total sense because that's a book that Banshee is now starring in, but it takes him in a very strange new direction. And I think now is perhaps a good time to pause for the Cerebro character file. On Black Tom Cassidy, I will take you through his complete publication history from X-Men 99 up through the present in X-Force. And then we will come back for more with Owen Higgins. We will go through his stories in the 90s and beyond, which are more limited than, like, we've gotten through, I think, the meat of his, you know, time as a big villain. But he has this bit in Gen X and then a very out-of-character moment in the Chuck Austin run before popping up a couple more times, and then becoming a more regular presence on Krakoa. Then we will answer questions from listeners like you, so stay tuned. We'll be right back. X-Men, X-Men. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. And now, Miss Candy Southern, and me, your host, with a message from our sponsors. Long time no see, beautiful boys and groovy gals. The summer's just beginning, and I, for one... (laughs) Oh my, that one was a whopper. What's the matter, Candy? Sorry, Connor, old sport. My allergies are just the pits this year. I'm afraid any ad for me is going to sound like it was recorded underwater. Have you tried Astapro over-the-counter nasal spray? It's the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray and starts working in 30 minutes while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray delivering full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny itchy nose, and sneezing. I've had terrible allergies this year, which is a bummer when you record a podcast for a living, but Astapro has kept me sounding crystal clear. It's got your back and your nose. And thank heavens for that. If you've got allergies like me and Candy, get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. 
Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. X-Men, X-Men. Thomas Samuel Eamon Cassidy, better known as Black Tom, is a classic supervillain best known as the cousin of X-Men Sean Cassidy, a.k.a. Banshee, the foster father of Sean's daughter Teresa, a.k.a. Siren, and the devoted partner of Kane Marco, a.k.a. the juggernaut, Charles Xavier's evil stepbrother. Raised alongside Sean as the heirs to a nigh-extinct Irish noble house, Tom Cassidy was drawn to crime just as his cousin was drawn to law enforcement. Initially presented as a flamboyant trickster who walks with a limp and channels energy blasts through his wooden shillelagh walking stick, over time, as his powers evolve, Tom becomes more of an all-purpose plant controller. By partially merging with the living island, he now serves as the sentient security system for the mutant nation Krakoa. Tom makes his debut in 1976's X-Men 99 by Chris Claremont and Dave Cockrum, in which he appears only as a shadowy figure and murders the family lawyer, Mr. Flarty. Flarty has just informed Sean by letter that he's the new lord of Cassidy Keep, the ancestral castle, and over the next few issues, Sean and the X-Men decide to come visit. There they're ambushed by Black Tom and the Juggernaut, who've rigged the castle with lethal booby traps and blackmailed the Cassidy family steward, Eamon O'Donnell, into helping them deceive the heroes. Sean's surprised that Tom's out of prison, and it turns out he and his new partner Kane were freed by the sheer operative Davan Shikari, aka Eric the Red, in the hopes that they might eliminate the X-Men for him. In a climactic battle between Cassidy's, Sean manages to flip Tom over, sending him plummeting off the castle ramparts and into the sea to his apparent death. Kane, uncharacteristically frightened, leaps into the ocean in the hopes of saving his only friend. Two years later, in Uncanny X-Men 122, we learn that Tom and Kane indeed survived. Kane wants revenge, but Tom suggests they avoid getting their own hands dirty this time. Instead, they hire the Mad Assassin Arcade to kill the X-Men for them. Obviously, he does not succeed. It's another two years before Tom returns for a Chris Claremont Spider-Woman story in which heroine Jessica Drew faces off with the new villain Siren. Young Teresa Rourke is Tom's niece and looks just like his cousin Sean, in addition to sharing Sean's mutant sonic powers. Teresa joins Tom and Kane in an attack on the Federal Mint in San Francisco, but the X-Men team up with Spider-Woman to stop them. When Teresa's apprehended, Tom insists on taking all the blame for her actions, and gives her a letter for Sean, informing him that Teresa's his biological daughter with Maeve Rourke, his late wife whose death in an IRA bombing was the incident that drove Tom and Sean apart forever. Tom had raised Teresa as his own, allowing her to believe that her father was dead and never informing Sean he had a child. In Roger Stern and John Romita Jr.'s Amazing Spider-Man 229 and 230, Tom and Kane are once again at large and operating out of a high-tech super yacht. Tom decides it'd be useful to have the services of the precognitive mutant Madam Web, so Kane kidnaps her. Spider-Man ends up knocking the indestructible Kane into wet cement, where he's trapped indefinitely as he slowly digs his way free. It's three years later, in 1985, that Louise Simonson bring back Tom and Kane for Marvel Team-Up 150, co-starring Spider-Man and the X-Men. It's Tom's birthday, and Kane decides to surprise him with a very special gift, the Ruby Gem of Ciderac, which bestows the power of the Juggernaut. Kane's willing to share his gift, and Tom immediately grows to massive muscular size. He's frightened rather than grateful, and the two end up quarreling when Kane feels rejected. It turns out the shared power is now limited, and each now only has the strength of half a juggernaut, leaving them vulnerable to defeat by the X-Men. Once the power is restored to the gem and then back to Kane, the two escape, and Tom thanks Kane for a memorable birthday and insight into his closest companion. In 1987, Kane tangles with the X-Men in Uncanny X-Men 218 to serve as a diversion while Tom robs the Bank of Scotland. That same year, a classic X-Men backup story by Chris Claremont and John Bolton fleshes out the relationship between Tom, Sean, and Maeve Rourke. Maeve was a spirited young motorcyclist who rescued Sean from a British police officer who was giving him a hard time, and she was soon courted by both Cassidy cousins. After Sean was injured by the same bigoted policeman, he asked Tom to go meet Maeve at a party in his place so she wouldn't be alone. 
Tom let Maeve believe Sean had stood her up, but confessed the truth when he saw how upset Maeve was and realized it was Sean she truly loved. Maeve promised him they would be friends for the rest of their lives. Four years later, in 1991, Black Tom returns in X-Force number one by Rob Liefeld and Fabian Niciesa, the big relaunch of New Mutants after issue 100. In the intervening years between Black Tom appearances, Kane had been banished to another dimension by the mighty Thor. Now, Tom meets with cutting-edge scientist Ariana Jankos, who agrees to use her dimensional scanning technology to retrieve Kane for him. In return, Tom agrees to do a particularly tricky job for her, kidnapping the corporate buyers who are attempting a hostile takeover of Jankos Corp. Over the next few issues, Tom and Kane hold these businessmen, including Hoberta de Corsta, a.k.a. Sunspot, hostage at the World Trade Center, and the situation quickly garners press attention. X-Force comes to the rescue, as does Siren, who joins up with X-Force to stop her uncle. Tom reveals he's rigged the tower to explode, and chaos ensues as the blasts begin. X-Force's leader Cable chases Tom, who falls into an elevator shaft and clings to the floor in surrender. Cable, setting the tone for this darker-edged new book for the 90s, refuses to take Tom into custody and instead blows him away with a machine gun, riddling him full of holes and sending him falling to his apparent death. Tom's good at not dying in a fall, though, and in the following issue we see he was rescued by the mercenary Deadpool at the behest of the mysterious crime lord Mr. Tolliver. Two years later, in Fabian Niciesa's 1993 miniseries Deadpool the Circle Chase, we see how Tolliver's scientists saved Tom's life by using experimental semi-sentient wood fibers, which they interwove with Tom's mangled flesh. Now partially made of wood, Tom finds that his crippled leg has healed and that he can now channel his energy powers through his own body instead of using the shillelagh or other wooden objects. Mr. Tolliver by that point has apparently died, and the circle chase concerns his former employees seeking control of his assets. This leads Tom and Kane to a confrontation with Deadpool in Cairo that ends in them being tossed out of a plane. The following year, flashbacks in X-Force 31 further establish Siren's childhood and Tom's relationship with Sean and Maeve. We learn that Tom accepted Maeve and Sean's love and was best man at their wedding, but that his pride was so wounded by Maeve's rejection that he began turning to crime. When Sean joined Interpol, he was forced out of communication with the family for lengthy periods, and during one such stretch on a mission, Maeve discovered she was pregnant. She gave birth to Teresa shortly before she was killed in the IRA bombing. When Sean returned, Tom was left with the task of informing him his wife had died, and didn't have time to tell Sean about Teresa before Sean blamed him for not keeping Maeve safe. He attacked Tom, destroying the earth beneath him with a sonic scream and causing the fall that crippled Tom's leg. Tom then decided to raise Teresa himself and begin the deception. Eventually, he sent her to boarding school to keep her out of his growing criminal enterprises, and while she was away, Sean returned. He seemed interested in reconciling with Tom, but it turned out he was undercover investigating Tom's crimes. He had Tom arrested and sent to prison, where Tom met Kane and everything changed. In the present, Tom is losing his mind because the symbiotic wood fibers are growing out of control now inside his body. Feeling death approaching, he returns to Cassidy Keep and has Kane arrange a meeting with Teresa at Maeve's grave. After making his apologies to his foster daughter, Tom surrenders to Interpol, as their medical resources may be able to help him with his aggressive condition. Later that year, Niciesa brings Tom along to the Deadpool solo series, where Kane breaks Tom out of Interpol custody because the treatments are simply taking too long. It turns out Interpol set him up with Dr. Emrys Killebrew, formerly of Weapon X, who gave Deadpool his powers and is now making progress on Tom's condition. Kane kidnaps Dr. Killebrew to ensure the treatments continue, and Killebrew suggests that Deadpool's healing factor might be the key. Banshee and Siren team up with Deadpool to battle Tom and Kane, and while Tom briefly seems to cure his viral wood condition by grafting Deadpool's hand onto his own wrist, he ends up collapsing in pain as Deadpool's cancerous healing factor begins overtaking his system instead. Kane agrees to let Tom and Killebrew return to Interpol's facilities, but promises he will break Tom out again the minute he's better. Tom next appears in Scott Lobdell's run on Generation X, in which he's involved in the very confusing Mondo storyline. Mondo's a young mutant who joins Sean and Emma Frost's new class of students, but he actually turns out to be working for Black Tom as a spy. 
Tom sneaks under the grounds of the Massachusetts Academy himself, as his mutation and his illness seem to have developed in a dramatic new way. He's now a full-blown plant controller, and his body is made entirely of wood and plant matter. Merging with the samples of the living island Krakoa that Emma and Sean have employed for their training areas, Tom becomes part of the land and further loses his humanity. By the time he and Mondo launch their attack, he is completely crazy! Tom uses his dramatically expanded powers to send the students far, far away and tries to force Sean and Emma to kill each other. Finally, the mute girl Penance, the only student left behind, uses her razor-sharp fingers to cut Tom's plant body in half. Mondo ends up killed by the super-sentinel Bastion. When Black Tom returns, almost two years later, in the Siegel and Kelly X-Men run, he's once again in his classic human form, with the parasitic wood virus situation apparently handled off-panel. He asks Storm and Gambit to help him steal a counterfeit ruby gem of Ciderac from an evil cult that has attacked Kane and stolen his powers. Back in Generation X, now written by Jay Ferber, Tom returns in issue 60 as part of a pretty big retcon. The Mondo we met earlier was just a plant matter clone Tom created, and the real Mondo has been alive and in training all this time. Mondo wants revenge on Emma Frost's sister Cordelia for reasons, don't worry about it, and attacks the Massachusetts Academy with Tom and Kane. You really don't have to worry about any of this. Two years later, in Chuck Austin's Uncanny X-Men, Tom experiences a sudden secondary mutation that once again turns him into a plant monster like he was in early Generation X. Driven crazy once more, Tom lashes out at Kane, who calls the X-Men for help. Feeling betrayed, Tom abandons Kane, who ends up joining the X-Men. When Tom returns two years later as part of a new Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, he's once again completely insane, and tries to convince Kane to betray the X-Men as a double agent. When Kane's student Sammy Perret, aka Squid Boy, discovers the meeting in the woods, Tom brutally murders the boy before Kane's eyes. He then launches a murderous rampage across the school until he's banished into a black hole alongside the rest of the new Brotherhood. Tom's creator Chris Claremont, now back on Uncanny after Austin had moved to New X-Men, subsequently reveals that the Brotherhood landed in Mojo World and cut a deal with Mojo himself to escape. Tom then pivots into Claremont's new Excalibur, which deals with the fallout from House of M and the Decimation in England, and stars Kane as a member of the team. The Decimation somehow reverts Tom to his classic form, and as a result, restores his sanity. Desperate for Kane's attention, Tom begins working for the evil Black Air, and running jobs that will force him to fight Excalibur. He kills Dazzler in battle, she gets better, and then ends up face-to-face -face with Kane. Tom denies his responsibility for killing Sammy Perret due to his mental state at the time, but Kane won't have it. He convinces Tom to surrender to the authorities and begin making amends in prison for killing the child. Five years later, in 2012, Tom returns in the Deadpool solo series, now written by Daniel Way, and teams up with fellow Deadpool foes Black Box and Black Swan to take down Deadpool once and for all. It does not work. It's another four years before Tom pops up again, this time during the Inhumans vs. X-Men era. As M-Pox ravages the country, Tom joins the new Hellfire Club in Cullen Bunn's Uncanny X-Men, serving as Magneto and Monet Sancroix's White Bishop. He works with the X-Men to take down the Someday Corporation, an evil entity manipulating mutant M-Pox patients. The following year, Bunn uses Tom again in X-Men Blue, now fully reset to factory settings. He's doing mercenary work with Kane, like back in the 70s and 80s, and they fight the time-traveling Teen 05 on a yacht. In the 2019 soft reboot, House of X and Powers of Ten by writer Jonathan Hickman, Tom is one of countless mutants to become a citizen of the new mutant sovereign nation on the living island Krakoa. Though Kane, as a human, is initially forbidden from setting foot on the island, Tom flourishes there as his mutant power begins interfacing with the sentient Earth. Becoming part of Krakoa's hive mind, Tom evolves into the living security system for the new mutant state, and is tasked with assisting the secret Black Ops security apparatus in Ben Percy's X-Force. He agrees, in part to explore his new condition, but also because Krakoan leadership agrees to resurrect Sammy Perret. As Tom continues to serve his new homeland, becoming a physical outgrowth of it, his sense of self has grown more and more unstable. 
but the recent arrival on the island of his devoted partner Kane, now permitted to be a human resident of Krakoa, has brightened old Black Tom's eyes again. X-Men, X-Men. And we're back. I hope that you enjoyed that character file. We are about to take you on the roller coaster ride of the latter half of Black Tom Cassidy's appearances, where shit just gets weirder and weirder. He gets crazier and crazier. Before it all gets sort of resolved to some extent on Krakoa. And then we are going to answer your questions. We took a lunch break, so my voice has bounced back a little bit. I was like, Mjordish accent is going to be even worse because I can't talk. Well, it has, it has more of a lilt now to it. Yeah, well, this morning it was like, <laughs> so this is what happens. Live theater, everybody. You can't, the thing about a weekly show is you can't, uh, you can't put it off if you have laryngitis. In any case, when last we left our villain, he was with Interpol again, but he escapes to turn up for Generation X 18, where we see that he has become a full-on plant guy now. Like, now he is just made of wood and plants and whatever. So whatever the treatment was to stabilize things, it seems to have gone really the other direction. <laughs> Total 180. Yeah, this is perhaps because of like, actually, there's something a little bit interesting. I mean, this is where he starts to have the ability to control plant life generally and to like commune with it. And the suggestion in Gen X, they're using samples of Krakoa the island to create their like danger biosphere. Tom turns up because he has infiltrated that plant system and has been slowly taking it over. But it seems like bonding with the Krakoan plant matter somehow accelerates him in some way. Like if you look at it now on Krakoa where he is attuned to the system very closely and intimately connected to Krakoa in a way that most characters are not, it makes sense that maybe this sort of started with his first taste of Krakoan energy or, or what have you. It does feel like it's just too much for him at this point, though. Like, he can't he can't handle it. Like, like there's just there's too much going on for his brain. To, yeah, to he's with. still too fractured. It's just not working. And it turns out the newest Gen X member, Mondo, who recently joined the team after Gen X, rescued him from a whole thing with Cordelia Frost, Emma's younger sister. Don't worry about it. We'll get to that in a Mondo episode someday, which would be very difficult because Mondo, well, it's just really strange, right? So it turns out that Mondo is Black Tom's sleeper agent within the team. He's there to spy on them and report back to Black Tom. As I recall, like, like Mondo isn't even really like super like like he's not even like super introduced before this happens, though. Like, like it happens quite quickly. No, it's all really abrupt. Yeah. And uh, basically, Tom forces Sean and um, he kidnaps all the kids and he forces Sean and Emma to fight to the death. <laughs> and so Emma uses her telepathy to fake Sean killing her, basically. She takes over his mind and uses his powers in a, such a specific way as to knock her unconscious in a way that makes Tom believe she's dead. 
the whole thing is just very unclear though like tom is just fully crazy here like his motivations are unclear it seems like he wants revenge on sean but we don't really know why and mostly he's just like a gibbering swamp thing looking monster yeah it's it's a good showcase for chris Bacolo to draw a lot of weird stuff but as far as his actual like the coherent like through line to what he's doing it doesn't really exist exactly he's just kind of when i think they ask him what his motivation is at one point and he says i just want to kill you all and then just kind of <laughs> he just kind of leaves it at that yeah so it's resolved in kind of a confusing series and this is all leading into operation zero tolerance tom sends the kids away to the ocean where they eventually will run into glory and shape of dreams which is how they get to la which is how they get caught up in operation zero tolerance this is really the very end of the Lubdell run on Gen X. Mondo is killed by Bastion, and Tom is cut in half by Penance, who has razor-sharp skin and just slices him in fucking half, which is it's a pretty incredible... In the space of a moment at the hands of the young, tormented girl who has thus far been unable to express her pain, all the hatred and venom and bile that was Thomas Cassidy is no more. It's pretty dramatic. There's not much else to say about it. I, I remember reading that and being really floored, honestly. A little bit later, we get a Howard Mackie story where, again, like every now and then, Spider-Man will just like advance this plot because the Juggernaut and Spider-Man fight sometimes. And we find out that Tom's alive because Juggernaut is doing crimes to help him recuperate again as usual as usual that said when he comes back he's pretty normal looking again like he just kind of looks like himself this is in the siegel and kelly run kane is tricked by a cult that wants to steal the power of the juggernaut and it's a nice little role reversal this is uncanny 361 in 97 98 98 it's a nice little role reversal for Tom and Kane because Tom gets to take care of Kane, who's like weak, you know, so that's nice because they never get to do that. <laughs> Tom hires Storm and Gambit to do a heist to like get the ruby from the cult so that they can give Kane his powers back. Except then a couple months later, we find out that the cult tricked them. Basically, it was a trap. When they took the power back, he also absorbed the evil demon that the cult worships. And so they fall into, and in, this is a very bizarre story. <laughs> they, like Kane like tears through dimensional space and they end up in like a non-Euclidean reality. Tom speaks to these beings that exist there and they team up with the X-Men to exercise Kane and everything's fine. So that's just a weird bit little closed loop there yeah then there's a retcon in gen x 1661 this is the jay ferber run that establishes that the mondo who joined gen x in the first place and was their teammate and then betrayed them was like a plant construct clone created by tom and that the real mondo has been living with tom and training in the use of his powers or because mondo he can mimic things by touching them he's like the absorbing man kind of so he does plant stuff too 
Mondo wants to go after Cordelia Frost because she had sold him out way back when. The real Mondo now teams up with Black Tom and Kane to attack Generation X because Gen X comes to Cordelia's defense. This is when Tom explains the whole long, insane retcon <laughs> that mostly serves to bring Mondo back, but he never really matters again until Jonathan Hickman randomly picks him up for Krakoan New Mutants. The thing about Mondo that's really tricky is, I mean, the teens even say, like, Mondo, you're our friend. He's like, actually, I've never met you. That was a clone, remember? So now it's just kind of like, all right, this character exists, but he doesn't really have a relationship with any of these people. Yeah, there's like there's like an opportunity to kind of do something with that, but I don't recall if they really... They really haven't. Do. And I remember yeah. when Cyclops did his, like, Million Mutant March in the group shot, Mondo was with Gen X. So it's like, I guess they patched it up. But like we like never, some, some, or like he got there and he was looking around and he didn't see anybody that he recognized and he saw them. It's like I like, fought oh, them yeah. once; they think they know me, so yeah. you know that's fine. The big return after that story for Tom is in the Chuck Austin run on Uncanny X Men. This is right after Austin has taken over from Joe Casey, sort of abruptly. It's in two thousand two. Kane calls the X-Men because Tom is crazy again. And more importantly, like, this is the time when the secondary mutations were a plot that was happening throughout the lines, like Emma's diamond form, Beast evolving into a kitty cat. And here, Tom just fully becomes a plant guy. It's no longer the parasitic infection from back in the 90s. It seems like it's just who he is now. Like he just has become a Swamp Thing kind of person. Yeah, it, it doesn't seem painful to him in the same way. No. That, that it was when it was like infecting him. But he's fully crazy now. Like I think that it like the, the transformation itself was painful, but it doesn't seem like it is an ongoing. It's just like. He basically just breaks. And so Kane calls the X-Men because he doesn't know who else will come to help. And Tom decides, like, you've betrayed me or whatever. This is where Chuck Austin's very weird juggernaut is straight take begins because they tease him about Black Tom being his boyfriend. He's like, it's not like that, you know, or whatever, which it absolutely is. 100%. I think that most things in this story... No disrespect to friend of the pod, Chuck Austin, who will be appearing on the show in a couple months. But as with many things in the Austin run, they're simply out of character and you just have to kind of roll with it. And, you know, we can no prize our way out someday in the future. With Tom, it's easy because he's fully just insane here with plant madness. There is a scene before like what we're going to get to here where 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 juggernaut is kind of, he's kind of like kane is proposition mm -hmm. right and he doesn't seem like super interested in it right so there is that yeah but like he also fucks she hulk the austin run is weird oh he does see oh, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. no and dan slot was so mad about it that he retconned the she hulk into an imposter so i think we should just retcon that the kane was also an imposter and that none of that happened because he's gay but whatever it's not yeah. that big a yep. deal the big thing in this run for Juggernaut, and this is not a Juggernaut episode, and we'll get to it someday in a Juggernaut episode, is that he joins the X-Men and, like, has a full-on redemption arc. And it's, like, apart from the heterosexual stuff, which just feels so off to me, everything else that Austin does with Juggernaut is really good. 
he gives him a little morality pet character, this teenager, Sammy Paré, the squid boy, who is called squid boy, but is really more of a fish boy. He doesn't look like a squid. But in any case, he is a young mutant who is a very visible fish mutant. And Kane sort of mentors him, and they're, they're this unlikely, you know, pair or whatever throughout the Austin run. After Austin moves from Uncanny to New X-Men once Morrison leaves, Tom returns as part of a new brotherhood of evil mutants led by Exodus, and he is fully now just Swamp Thing. Like, he just looks like, not even really, like he, I'm trying to think of what, he looks like Krakoa honestly does now. Like, he's just a plant thing with a face. Yeah, he just looks like a tree. Yeah. Kane seems to betray the X-Men to join up with Tom. It will later be revealed that he is coordinating with Havoc. And much like Havoc actually once did with Dark Beast's Brotherhood, Kane has joined the Brotherhood to act as a double agent for the X-Men. But Sammy catches them like in a meeting together in the woods and confronts them and is so hurt that Juggernaut has betrayed the X-Men. He spits at him like it's pretty extreme. And then Black Tom just delights in viciously murdering this little boy before Juggernaut can do anything about it. Yeah, he just kind of he, he he like wraps the vines around him and just kind of snaps him all of his bones. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's extremely gruesome. And it's really I mean, I don't know how much time we want to spend on like this one moment because it is kind of out of character, but it is like really out of it's out of character though. It is yeah, just out this, of character. He wouldn't do this. Well, and you know it's like really wild because the next time he appears, it's Chris Claremont walking this back. Right. Much like after Morrison had Magneto go crazy in Planet X, they brought Chris Claremont in to walk it back. That was a much more dramatic example and a much more out of character turn because Black Tom has been crazy in the past, but delighting in the brutal murder of a child that Kane cares about in front of Kane just to like toughen him up or what it's insane. He ends up growing then like to sort of encompass all of the the area around the mansion nocturne of the exiles is able to possess him which stuns him for a minute and then zorn because (laughs) editorial asked austin as part of the planet x cleanup to introduce the real zorn again very real mondo the new zorn has a black hole for a, a brain instead of a star he's evil zorn's twin brother do not worry about this we will get to this someday in a zorn episode where i will truly stare into the gaping maw of retcon madness in this case he opens his black hole head and the brotherhood all gets sucked away this brotherhood features mama max the elephant man which i mention only because it's an astounding fact that Black Tom is friends with Mama Max, the Elephant Man. Uh, and someday, perhaps, they'll get a point down the pub. They are pals. There, there, there is just one thing that I just want to mention from this from this battle that I think is a really cool moment, which is, um, although it is like another murder, but it's it's when he is able to like manipulate the spores of fungus in the cook's yeah. apron and to use that to like grow 
I think is a really that's a really cool and imaginative use. Of he his does power. a lot of really cool power stuff. It's just that he's just like an insane, sadistic murderer, and it's so far out. Of, like he kills all yeah. of these like human employees at the Xavier School. It's just it's really really crazy. Chris Claremont is writing Uncanny not too too long after this, when we find out what happened to the Brotherhood, which is that they wound up in Mojo World. And they managed to barter their way out. How the black hole dragged them to Mojo World, not enormously clear. But you know what? It's a black hole. Mojo World's an interdimensional space. Like, that's fine. This is Decimation Era. In the wake of House of M, Chris Claremont starts writing New Excalibur. And Kane is one of the members of that team. Chris is looking around at like how to make sense of the decimation with this cast of characters he's put together. And one of the first things he does is have the decimation for no particular, like it's, it's interesting. House of M was a reality warp. And for a while it seemed like maybe certain things were changed permanently, but then really in the end, it's only Chris who uses it that way. And in this book in particular, it's like, oh, is this really Courtney Ross brought back to life by House of M? And it's like, no, Chris, it's not because that's not how the decimation works. <laughs> but it doesn't seem like anyone is giving him notes. In this case, Tom keeps his powers after the decimation, but the secondary mutation totally rewinds. He's back to the old bioblasting powers and all of that, but he's not as crazy anymore. He ends up taking jobs to do mercenary work in England because he knows that Kane is there and he's like ashamed of what he's done and he wants to fight Kane and like be punished, basically. He has some of his plant life control powers. He's just like not a literal plant guy anymore. He looks like classic Black Tom. And he straight up murders Dazzler at one point. But this is part of the Dazzler's immortal arc of New Excalibur that's never explained. So she comes back. Um, <laughs> but uh, for the most part, Black Tom is working for Black Air, the evil organization that Pete Wisdom's in conflict with all the time. Eventually, he is apprehended because he's holding this woman hostage, and Kane confronts him about killing Sammy. Black Tom is like, that wasn't me. You know that wasn't me. I wasn't thinking clearly. I was crazy. On M Day, I woke up like myself, I, and I was myself again, and that thing before it was a nightmare it wasn't me and Kane's like yeah okay but like he's still dead and you still did it and someone has to pay for that convinces Tom to surrender and later in a later arc of New Excalibur we see Kane visit Tom in prison which is a great just a great moment great scene this is New Excalibur 13 this is Claremont really just doing repair work here he says, I never killed a child before. I see his face when I sleep. I see that terrible day over and over. Me taking his life, but it's not me. It's like I'm watching some kind of terrible movie. <laughs> and I'll be watching it in my mind for the rest of my days. So, you know, that's a pretty good reset for the character, but no one used him after that for years. I mean, the damage had really been done. It's sort of like once you have a fun, charming supervillain 
brutally execute the child's character we've spent years like you know following as like the plucky student of the x-men you just can't really walk that back easily the only thing that's going to walk that back is time and so he really is just on ice until like 2012 i want to say when he pops up in deadpool yeah yeah he pops up in deadpool and then he pops up in uncanny like four years later which is like another you know but I think you're right. I think I think it is like kind of the severity of the crime is is it just kind of yeah. takes away from a lot of the enjoyment. It's like Dr. Light at DC, like after Identity Crisis, when they did the whole like Dr. Light raped Sue Dibney twist in that story, which is like fully that's like one of my least favorite comics of all time, Identity Crisis. But oh, shit, I think I, I think I remember. It. Yeah, it's the one where Sue Dibney dies. It's like but it's also then revealed after she's been brutally murdered. They reveal in flashback. Oh, and like she was raped by the supervillain and we wiped everybody's mind because Batman didn't agree with what we were doing or whatever. Point is. No one has ever really wanted to use Dr. Light ever again because he's a villain who is not usually that serious. And then it was like, oh, well, DC's rebooted their continuity like three times since then. It's still just like we don't really want to futz with that character. Well, you, you've introduced that, that aspect to the character. So at that point, like, you know, what can you do? Yeah, like Black right. Tom is now a child murderer, even if he feels bad about it. It's like, what are you going to do about that? So the only real way to deal with it, I think, was just to not use him until everybody had forgotten about it. Because the Austin run was not well loved, to, to put it mildly. And a lot of the weirder turns in it were sort of tossed down the memory hole. I mean, I can't think of the last time that Angel and Husk have spoken to each other on panel, for example, because it's just like, let's just not go there. And similarly here, I think that there was just an idea of like, let's just leave him in jail. Chris wrote that great scene. We don't need to really do anything with this character for a while. But yes, he pops back up in Deadpool in 2012 in a Daniel Way story where he teams up with Black Box and Black Swan. It's like a black supervillain names team up, which is kind of funny. This is not the Hickman supervillainess Black Swan discussed last week in the Manifold episode. This is the guy named Black Swan who's like an assassin that I think Gail Simone created in an earlier Deadpool story. This is not a Deadpool podcast. I'm not very versed. I haven't read nearly as much of it as I would need to to give you details on that. The plot at this point is that Deadpool's healing factor isn't working. So they're like, we're, they're going to kill him once and for all. But Deadpool is able to erase that from their memories so they forget about it so they stop trying to do it and then i guess his healing factor eventually comes back again i have not read most of this run of deadpool i read this one issue or it's a couple issues too it's like 50 58 to 60 i guess three yeah i mean i i zip through them reading the black tom scene specifically deadpool has just never been my it's it's never done it for me it's not my style it's just not my sense of humor honestly I can't get into Gwenpool either. Like people love those characters and I'm just like, I, I, and I get it. I just, it's not, it, it doesn't do it for me. Then during the Inhumans versus X-Men era, Cullen Bunn uses Black Tom in his uncanny run, which is fun. It's a more heroic role for him, finally. Like it does feel like an attempt to fully say he's back. Like he's back in his 70s costume. It's very, you know, 
fun adventures. He's joined the Hellfire Club, but the new Hellfire Club that's led by Magneto and Monet as White King and White Queen. He becomes the White Bishop. He, um, he like, impresses the Hellfire Club people being like, I'm the Lord of Cassidy Keep, which, like, they don't realize doesn't really mean anything. It is like worth about $5 and a bunch of moldy bricks, but they work together because it's that it's the plot with the someday corporation where they're supposedly putting mutants in suspended animation while the MPOX crisis is raging, but they're actually then turning the mutants into monsters and like yada, yada, yada. So the X-Men team up with the Hellfire Club to put a stop to that. Bun uses him again after Inhumans vs. X-Men in X-Men Blue in the first issue, actually, where he and Juggernaut are just classic style back at it again, you know, doing their mercenary stuff. Doing crimes, yep. They end up fighting the time-traveling 05 X-Men, and it's very much like a comfortable reset. It feels like enough time had passed that you can just have these characters be who they classically were. And I think that's it until Krakoa. Yeah. That brings us to that. In which he becomes an essential member of the new X-Force working under Beast and Sage. He is also, in general, a key part of Krakoa's security apparatus because he is able to directly connect himself with Krakoa's sentient landmass network, which he calls the Veg, just like the plant life that he's in tune with and become basically the island's living security system. He's aware of everything that happens. What's been interesting is he's having sort of this steady depersonalization crisis over time where he's losing his sense of self as he becomes more and more part of the land. There's a really creepy moment in a data page where it's implied that he may be infected with the transmode virus because of the futzing around that Cypher and Warlock have been doing with the Technarch stuff on the island. We'll see if that, you know, plays out into anything interesting in particular. There are just a couple nice little nods Ben Percy does to the obvious romantic tenor of his relationship with Kane. Yeah, I was gonna say he that. has a dream where Kane is tickling him with those big fingers and like it's very flirty. There's the data page about the dream. There's that too, but there's also the the bar sequence where like Kane is upset that someone called Tom Dracula as a reference to that mix up in the press. Once Kane is allowed back on the island in the lead up to Legion of X, but first in a Fabian Nicias story their reunion is very like it just has the vibe of these two men are in love with each other which is nice i don't know if we're ever going to get there because juggernaut is a pretty like a-list villain in a lot of ways but i think that in the era where mystique and destiny are like making out on covers at the center of the line it doesn't feel completely impossible to me and i would like to see it i think it would advance both characters Outside of X-Force, Black Tom's biggest thing was the X-Men Unlimited story for St. Patrick's Day that Declan Shalvey wrote with some Irish collaborators. It's a really fun little story where Sean goes to Cassidy Keep, and of course Sean was dead for a long time, so he finds it pretty much a wreck. He's looking for Eamon O'Donnell, the steward, 
Tom walks in and is like, Eamon's been dead for a few years, Sean. Like, you've been gone a long time. And they have a big fight. They sort of lay out the plot. They catch up new readers on the beef between them. And eventually Siren breaks the fight up because Cassidy Keep is hers now. She inherited it when Sean died. She's like, you know, you've been gone a really long time, Dad. And I haven't forgiven Tom for lying to me my whole life, but we've made our peace and we're moving on. And I hope that you two can also. The really key moment is like they stop fighting because they have a full just joint breakdown when Sean, you know, hits Tom and is like, you stole my daughter. She needed her dad. And Tom says, I thought I was giving her a dad because you weren't there. And then they both are just sort of collapsed. And that's when she shows up and is like, stop all this nonsense. And then they go down the pub and she wishes them a happy St. Patrick's Day. And and the leprechauns are there and it's fun. The story is also kind of about how ridiculous Cassidy Keep is from the perspective of an Irish reader. There's lots of teasing jokes about like how absurd the leprechauns and everything are. But at the same time, it's a nice send up to the history of the family. And I thought a good capstone on that relationship. Like you could now do anything with those characters. It feels like they've reconciled to whatever extent. If Black Tom and Juggernaut are going to basically be our friends going forward, this was a smart choice given that Banshee is back in circulation. And given that we hadn't seen Siren and Black Tom interact since that incredible story under Nisiesa in X-Force, which given how much Siren had been in comics in the aughts was kind of crazy. Like she's in like 200 issues of X Factor Investigations and Black Tom never Never factors in. Again, because I think the character was so poisoned because that's the same time like X Factor Investigations spins out of the decimation. So it's the same time that Claremont puts him in jail in New Excalibur and they just put him on ice for a long time. But I think the character is is back and is well positioned. I think that the one thing that's left to do, and I wouldn't be surprised if we see this in a group shot at some point somewhere, is just to make sure we understand that Sammy the Squid Boy has been resurrected on Krakoa and like show that he and Tom and Kane are okay or whatever. Like I, I if we just saw them in the background like having a chat with him. Or at least if he's okay with Kane. Right. Like, you know what I mean? Like Yeah. Yeah. I just think that that's the one piece that's still missing. And I think it's because, again, that scene is so infamous that I understand why no writer has been like, let's use Sammy the Squid Boy this issue. <laughs> like, I think that makes sense, but it would be good to do as part of the rehabilitation of Black Tom Cassidy that's been happening ever since and that has progressed to a nice place. I think that his role in X-Force is really fun. He has a lot of new fans I think he would only have more fans if he and Juggernaut were finally able to have their glorious wedding. And I'm available to write it, Marvel, if you're interested. But it's just one of those things where we'll have to see because those decisions are made by the floating space palace Disnopolis and not by anyone whose names we know. It does. It does feel like I mean, I know like I remember saying earlier in the show that like, you know, that they would you know, back in the 2000s that they would think of like not doing this as like, you know, quote unquote, like protecting the brand. And that was the way that they definitely thought about it then. But like, I just wonder if they still are thinking about it that way. The things have changed a lot. Like you have like Betsy and Rachel. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. We'll see. I do think that sometimes there's, and this is not me saying that like Marvel believes this. I just mean, there's a cultural belief in advertising 
that in like male driven media you can get away with lesbians in a way that like you know making someone's favorite character a gay guy suddenly is going to cause a huge problem even though of course if you actually have ever read juggernaut comics he's so fucking gay but like that, you know like right, that's right. just what are you going to do do you have anything else that you want to say specifically about black tom before we get into the questions yeah i have maybe one or two things i think you know number one is the dream thing that i referred to earlier is at one point there's it's it's just a sheet it's just text in in one of the newer yeah data page i think yeah. the x-force yeah and it's talking about how black tom was sleeping and he was dreaming about kane and he woke up and there was like a he he had in his dream had constructed yes. a 50 foot high statue of the juggernaut which is just like he made like a statue out of like earth and and just while sleeping like as an ode to his love it's very cute because he misses him because at the time kane's not allowed on the island for reasons that are complicated and have mostly to do with like editorial problems because <laughs> the juggernaut miniseries got delayed a bunch because of COVID. is basically what happened Got it. But that gets resolved after that. But I think that I think that like as as well as being like a very cute moment and, and a really nice moment, it also and, and a moment that winks at, at what we at, at, at what we've been. But it also about. shows that his power has grown enormously. Exactly. That that he's just he he's at a level of control over the natural world and and the earth and plants that he hasn't been before and you know we see it as like he he puts a little tiny person of himself like to go into beasts yes, to like find a, that's find fun a virus too, yeah and then at one point his whole he like creates his own head like coming up on a cliff that's like bigger <laughs> than the people that he's talking to so he's really he's kind of he's stretching a little bit and i think that it's really cool to watch him do that without having like the attendant without oh, it making he's, him he's insane. insane right, right exactly, yeah i mean exactly. like now he sometimes refers to himself like in the third person or in plural and stuff but he's not like a murderous psychopath which is how it used to go whenever his powers would expand so that's nice it's nice that he can just be i mean it's also a power set that's not super common in marvel comics that poison ivy swamp thing kind of vibe i mean we have man thing but he's kind of different like he's similarly like a the heap style character but he's not really the same kind of like plant guy and we don't have that many characters who are plant and earth manipulators richter and magma do stuff with the earth but like apocalypse's wife genesis showed up in ten of swords with plant control powers and it was like oh cool because again this is a power set we just don't see that often in marvel comics particularly in x-men comics so it's fun to stretch black tom in that direction especially because lots of people can shoot laser beams right so like if that was his only power his utility was somewhat limited, whereas now a lot like Madrox or like other characters, Warlock, who can sort of like spread themselves around a scene, he can now do all kinds of weird wacky. I love when he makes the little tiny Black Tom to jump inside Beast and like chase after the evil thing that's gotten inside Beast. Like that's very right. funny to me. And the, and the little Tom that's on, I can't remember which character, but the shoulder. Yes. Like he's to like communicate, like yeah. he just sends a little Tom to go like chat with them, who he is like, and it is him. Like it's all right. him in the same way that Krakoa is all Krakoa. 
And it seems like his connection with Krakoa is part of what's expanded his powers so dramatically, much like happened when he interacted with the Krakoan plant matter in Gen X. So like that makes sense. But it also is just a fun reimagining of the character. And again, I think the character needed some reimagining because of how profoundly he had the well had been poisoned in the Austin. Awesome yeah, and he, and even before that, I feel like he had been spinning his wheels for a long time. I I, I do actually have a question for you because I yeah. don't know if I missed this or if maybe this is open to interpretation. In House of X, Powers of X, I think it's in Year X one hundred or one twenty three or something like that, where Sinister has all of the like the Chimera uh, yeah, yeah, characters, yeah. and then there's Krakoa. Yes, is that Krakoa and Black Tom put together, or is that just Krakoa by itself? It's Krakoa and Cypher is my understanding. Oh, okay. Yeah, that actually makes Having like merged sense. into yeah. one being. Right. That's my recollection. No, I think you're right. I think you're right, yeah. I mean, that timeline's been erased, but it, it definitely is an interesting moment. What Black Tom is doing with Krakoa, running in parallel to what Cypher and Warlock are doing with Krakoa is interesting also as like an undercurrent throughout these stories and Ben Percy is the kind of writer who spends years develop. He's a novelist. Like it's always a slow build. And I'm sure that there's something brewing with that. Eventually we just haven't quite gotten to the resolution yet. And, and Forge is doing the bio. Yes. Mechanical stuff. So there's also that going on. There's also that, right. Well, and like the, there's sort of the emergence of like Floronic technology as something that, is happening like in different places around the world in reaction to Krakoa. It's all very interesting. And Black Tom seems to sort of be at the heart of all of it, which is a cool place for him to be. Well, let's get into the questions. A lot of people wrote in for this episode. Hugh O'Donnell writes, Hello, Connor, esteemed guest. As the youngest son of a large Irish-American family, I'm delighted to hear you're discussing one of my favorite complexly named villains. Honestly, raising your cousin's daughter in secret for 16 years because you have beef? Iconic. My question refers to Black Tom's name. As in Irish families, a color nickname usually refers to hair color. Have we ever seen a red or yellow Tom Cassidy? Also, what is Black Tom's relationship to the fair folk of Cassidy Keat? Does nature powers give him any particular connection? Is there a gate on the property? Are they connected to Otherworld? Thanks so much. Hugh O'Donnell, Hatching Phoenix on the Discord. No relation to Eamon. So the thing is, we've never met any other Cassidy's. So if if he's called Black Tom because his uncle was Tom, but was a ginger, and he's Black Tom, like, we just don't know. But it's definitely a reference to him being Black Irish and sort of yep. being akin to a lot of stereotypes about black irish people the idea of like he's he's like the latin lover essentially in the imagination of the the irish american framework really because i think that i do feel that the cassidy's are written from a very american perspective which is why the shalvey story was fun because it's in part about how the plastic patty way that irish americans do saint patrick's day is fully insane to irish people (laughs) but in that story we do see there is a krakoan gate at cassidy keep that it seems Teresa put there are they connected to other world is a great question we know that certain other fae of the British Isles are connected to other worlds, so I would assume yes. 
but it hasn't been super teased out because for a long time, I think everyone just wanted to pretend that the leprechauns were not a thing because it was seen as like a very 70s, like weird moment and no one really wanted to do anything with it. But now that they're like firmly, well, no, they're there, they exist, they're back. I think that there's something to the idea of Black Tom as being like close to the land in a way that Sean isn't, you know, Sean flies, Sean keeps flying away. And Tom is sort of the earth of Cassidy Keep in a lot of ways. So I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, in the in that story, it does seem like he has kind of a personal relationship with the leprechauns at this point. At this point, yeah. Not not in the first one, yeah. No, but in this one now. There's one named Owen, in fact, who he spelled E-O-I-N, who he like asked to go get Siren because Banshee's causing trouble. It's a new development, like, that he's close with them, and I wouldn't be surprised if it was because they can feel now that he's connected to the Earth in a way that he only was, like, sort of glancingly back in the day. I think that part of it, too, is that, and and this is this is just speaking specifically about this story, but it, it's like when you were talking about how, like, X-Men Blue, they kind of, like, retcon, they reset Kane and Tom. So, the, so that then they could be used again. Yes. And this one kind of feels like they're doing the same thing with the leprechauns, which were just completely ridiculous. Yeah, but they now they're from, like, but, this but, is fine. You could, these yeah, can so exist. Yeah, so now it's been reset and we can do it. Yeah. Absolutely. That's exactly right. Is this story reestablished Cassidy Keep as a setting that now could be used for a more serious story, even if it's one that does have leprechauns in it, which I think was what, Shalvi set out to do was to like make these Irish characters recognizably Irish. They also speak Irish to each other throughout the story in a way that they never did back in the yeah. in the day, apart from Sean occasionally like using the word Akushla to talk to about Moira, but like there was no other Gaelic really. Sam F. writes, Dear Mr. Goldsmith, an esteemed guest, I'm delighted to be writing this podcast once more, as this character is one I know very little about, and I'm delighted for the chance to learn. It seems he's really important to Juggernaut's history, but in spite of Juggernaut popping up in the 90s animated series, X-Men Evolution, and Wolverine and the X-Men, Black Tom seems to have been left out of all the animated adaptations. Why do you think that is? So I think it is twofold. One is they vibe really gay when they're together. And I think that it's, I mean, why isn't Destiny in any of those adaptations? Well, she's in Evolution, actually. And guess what? It comes off really gay. And Mm -hmm. Evolution didn't shy away from that. But I think that with the 90s cartoon, there was definitely a de-emphasis on that. Also, he's Banshee's arch nemesis. And Banshee is not that important a character in most adaptations. So his connections are pretty much severed. Most adaptations of the Juggernaut story in multimedia are adaptations of the Lee Kirby 60s Juggernaut story, not of the 70s Cassidy Keep story or the 90s stuff with him and Black Tom. It really is much more, no, Charles, like, get out of my head, you know, like in that very classic 60s brother versus brother, his name is literally Kane Marco kind of way <laughs> right i think I, I i i think those are both right and i think that there is a, a third reason which is that if you look at the way that and and like the way that writers kind of deploy tom and kane's relationship it's usually they're usually using and, and here, here i'm talking about their relationship as characters like both like like as as a as two characters in one story they usually use tom as a way to kind of motivate kane 
to go from point A to point B. Yeah. Because if you don't have motivation for him to go to point A to point B, then you're kind of stuck with this continuity area where he's just continually going from point A to point B, destroying things across the entire world. So he needs like a reason to do it. And I think that Tom kind of provides that by his schemes and his crime and and, and Kane's need to protect him. But I think if you're, you know, in the animated series, you already have the conflict between him and Professor X. And I don't think that you really need that. And so it's kind of adding another complication in as well. Yeah, no, I agree. Absolutely. He's a character that that could be used, but that just at the time was not easy to adapt into the material. So I was just say also like like you were saying earlier, right, about like the laser blasts and like yeah. everybody can do that. Like at that point, that's all he was really doing. So right, what's the you know what what's what's the you're just introducing another laser blaster in the comics at that time in the '90s. He was like the scary half plant monster guy who was not. Right. You know, it was a little bit darker than those cartoons tended to go anyway. It was X-Force stuff. And X-Force, like none of the stuff from X-Force is especially in that 90s cartoon because the tone of it would be very different. And that's not to say that the 90s cartoon doesn't get dark in places, but it's not Rob Liefeld dark. Sam continues, second, I'm given to understand that Tom's a mutant from Ireland who has plant-related powers, carries a shillelagh, and is on speaking terms with some of the she. Has he ever been tied with druidic traditions? If not, do you think he should be? Should he perhaps visit Otherworld, maybe provide Richter with a mentor who can relate to his struggles both as a mutant druid and as a gay man? And if he went to Otherworld, should Juggernaut get to come along? I feel like Kane would really relate to Shatterstar. They have both been subject to traumatic losses of autonomy at the hands of Switch and Mojo streamers, respectively. Once again, thank you so much for all the great work you do. Your podcast never fails to put a smile on my face sincerely sam f i like the idea of tom developing a connection to irish spirituality but i don't think that he historically has one because if you go again to the 70s introduction story the leprechauns have no time for him and he doesn't seem to be especially aware of their presence so i i think that it's something new and it's something that's maybe more born out of sirens connection with them through her time as the Morrigan and all of that other stuff. But I do think it's an angle that would be interesting to explore, particularly because Sean is very clearly not pagan minded. He's very Catholic. So like, yeah, I I can see like kind of like if they introduced, I mean, I I think Irish mythology is a really huge. Untapped resource is what I've always said. It's like, yeah, the fact that I'm saying, by default, we should assume that the denizens of Tirnanog are connected to Otherworld, but like it's not really like none yeah. of that stuff is really apart from the Morrigan and I think like one Kahulan story. I don't think anything's really been done. Which is preposterous. Like like the the the, the story is really it's really silly, is what I'm oh, saying. Uh, like, like, yeah, it, and not... we could ignore it. Like it's a don't yeah. worry about it. Because if you're not familiar like for, for listeners who are not familiar with, with Irish, Irish mythology. Like the Cahollan story is, I mean, it, it, it's hardcore. Oh yeah. Like it, like the, the Ton is is a really the Tane is crazy. Yeah. The and the Ulster cycle is crazy. There's a lot of really intense, cool Irish mythological stuff. But for whatever reason, superhero comics have never dipped into it very much. There's always been, I guess, more the perception that Greek and Norse myths are safer sometimes egyptian and in part that's because the people who believe those things are long dead i mean no one in modern greece 
has particularly strong feelings about Aphrodite, I don't think. Right, right. It's, you're, you're not going to offend anybody by, you know, these, these old... Right, people. whereas, like, dealing... I mean, you know, there are people in Ireland who claim descent from these characters, right? Like, to this day. So, I mean, Conquivar Magnessa is where the name Connor comes from. He's the bad guy in the Ulster Cycle. He is, uh, he is a no-good fella. But uh, it's just one of those things where, like, you know, I, I think that because it's like a, the national myth of a people who still exist, it's something that I think there's been a little bit more hesitation about. Whereas like leprechauns, who cares? Like no one is. Oh, yeah, know. yeah. It's, 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 I mean, that's totally, I, I would just say, you know, for, I, I don't know if you've read this, but for, for people who are listening, both listeners and anybody who, you know, writes for Marvel, who, who might be thinking about this as kind of an example of how to, throw all of this stuff at the wall and have it kind of work well there's a book called hounds of the morrigan by this woman named pat o'shea which is it's it's a children's book but basically she just incorporates all of it into this one story and it's a lot of fun and so but it's just a kind of a good way of like if if you really want to have a, a more modern introduction to like all of these characters that's like a, a a good way to go for it. yeah i mean i think it's unfortunate that peter david's stuff with the morgan was so crazy that i think there's been hesitation about expanding on any of that i mean you know leah williams tied that up in x factor on krakoa which was nice but what it means for the rest of that pantheon has not been enormously clear so it's something that would be interesting to play with particularly i think through the characters of black tom and his family because they have such mythic associations with Ireland in their theming that it would make a ton. Of, I mean, you know, Banshee and Siren are Banshee themed, obviously. And then you have Tom who becomes literally like a person of the mounds, right? Like he becomes like a creature of the hills, the hills themselves. So like a man coming out of the bog almost. Yeah. Like one of those exactly. bog men like coming back. Exactly. Yeah. So I just or I'm thinking of like, you know, like the the she are like the the people of the fairy mounds. And it's like he's he's become part of the landscape. So I think that they are exactly the right characters to do stuff with. And Shatterstar now has a connection to the Morrigan. So a Richter and Shatterstar and Black Tom and a Juggernaut story would actually be a lot of fun. It's perfect. They can just take a trip together to Ireland. Yeah, 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 yeah. That would be a fun unlimited story, actually. Neil Brannigan writes, I, lo I love all the Irish folks who wrote into this episode. Neil Brannigan writes, my dearest Connor and most illustrious guest, first and foremost, thank you so much for this absolute banger of a podcast. It's reunited my love for all things X-Men. Certainly stoked a fire in me that have been dimming for a few years. And now because of the wonders of this podcast, I've rediscovered just how much these fucking weirdos mean to me. Well, that makes me delighted. I'm glad to hear it. Right to my question. Well, it's more of a comment and an exasperation. As an Irish Catholic born and raised in Northern Ireland, I can only ever so slightly cringe at some of the representations of Irish Irish characters in comics and TV. With the X-Men, we really just have the Cassidys with their boyos, their laddies, and even the bloody leprechauns. <laughs> what I'm getting at is they've become caricatures of what has become Irishness. Think that really awful Star Trek The Next Generation episode with the farmyard and the shuttle bay, or even Voyager's god-awful Fairhaven. I'd really love to put some proper Irish culture into this lot, or to make the stereotypes not so key to the characters. It's implied Sean and Tom might be Northern Irish as Sean's wife was killed by the IRA, a strong story that's never been explored. It'd be great to see something come from that. I'd love to see these characters explore their history and culture a bit more than some vague cast on the Irish coast. They deserve more. We, as Irish ex-gays, deserve more. Do you agree, or am I complaining a bit too much here? Much love, Neil Brannigan. I think that you're absolutely right historically, but I do think that... 
if you haven't read that X-Men Unlimited story that Declan Shavi wrote, you absolutely should. I think that it went a long way toward addressing some of those complaints. In general, I think that part of the way you approach that is by saying that the things that are stereotypes about these characters don't have to be... I mean, like, I go back to last week's episode about Manifold and Gateway, and we were talking about how those characters can come across stereotypical to bystanders because we don't see Aboriginal people in any context in which they're not a stereotype. And so I think that the Irish thing that you're talking about, which is very prevalent in America, because the thing about Americans is that we're so disconnected from our old countries that there is an overemphasis at times on like, I'm Irish or I'm Italian when it's like actual people who live in Ireland or Italy are like, no, you're not. And this is embarrassing. I can only imagine that to an actual Irish person, a character like Sean Cassidy comes off a little bit like how an actual Italian person would see like the cast of Jersey Shore. Yeah. But I think there's something valuable in, I mean, this is not a Jersey Shore podcast, but I think that those real people did something for the culture in their own way. I mean, I, I think that the, the thing that becomes important is recognizing that outside of America where Irish Americans are a dime a dozen the Irish people are still an oppressed population. The way that England interacts with Ireland is still really messed up. And the troubles may be over, but they're not really over. I don't have to tell you that. You live in Northern Ireland. So, I mean, and you're a Catholic. So you're well aware that this stuff hasn't really gone away. They're not Northern Irish. They're from County Mayo. But we know that... And this, I think, is part of the tension, honestly, between them. We know that Sean used to go up to Northern Ireland for things because he meets Maeve when he's on his way back from a concert in the north and is stopped by, like, a British policeman who gives him a hard time. The fact that Sean is or was more of a unionist or like more you know okay with the six counties being part of the uk and all of that seems like it was a source of tension between them i think that tom having funded the ira is a really critical aspect to their characters the problem is the sliding time scale because the further away we get from the troubles you know, I mean, these characters are introduced decades before the Good Friday Agreement, and we're now decades after the Good Friday Agreement. So given yeah. that, like, Siren now can't have been born during the Troubles. Yeah, they, uh, so they, I, I think at this point, like, they would have been teenagers at that point, because they've got to be, like, they're what, in their 30s or maybe 40s, early 40s, right. maybe early 40s. The sliding timescale makes it really difficult. It's a lot like Carmen, Vietnam, or the really key one, which is, I think, a huge part of why Colossus as a character has just been spinning his wheels for about 20 years for the most part, is that the further away Colossus gets from the Soviet Union and communism. You have to like rewrite like how he and and i have some stuff to say about the irish stuff in a second but just to go off on like little colossus di digression to make colossus kind of like work now you'd have to rewrite him as a child of like the immediate post-communist russia 
which means that he has like totally different motivations and he has a totally different kind of experience encountering Russia as opposed to encountering the USSR. Like him, him, him working in the fields because he's working for the good of the people of the USSR is not something that you're going to see if he's growing up in kind of like the, you know, the Yeltsin early Putin era. Like that's just not, it's just not the same thing. It's really essential that he grew up on a collective farm and was a communist who believed in communism and believed in, in the Soviet state. I mean, that's like in a way that magic has not been burdened by that because her stuff is about growing up in hell. It's not about this, like her being Russian is just back. Totally it has nothing, it has point, nothing yeah. to do with who she is really. And then with Storm, unfortunately, like there's been enough crises in North Africa that it's sort of, it doesn't have to be the Suez crisis. You just need to know her parents died in a, a bombing of some kind. Yeah, and then she ended up in Cairo. Well, no, she was there with them at the time. Okay. So well, yeah, like, yeah. enough shit has happened in Cairo over the last, you know, 50 years that you can find a, a, a thing to attach it to, whether or not it's the Suez crisis specifically. But it, there's a couple of characters who really get hurt by it. And Karma is one, Colossus is one, and the Irish characters are definitely one, in, part be, in, in large part with them, because most Americans know nothing about the Irish Troubles. Like, literally nothing. It, yeah. It's like, it was a big story if you were there in the 90s looking at the news, especially if you were Irish-American and your family was talking about it. But otherwise, it's just, it, the cultural memory of it has not really lasted. Like, I'm trying to think of what the most consequential American media about the Troubles is. And it's like, or at least things that were big in America. And it's like The Crying Game, which is an incredible movie, but The Crying Game is now remembered primarily for its twist and for the analysis and reappraisal of that over time as conversations about gender have expanded. Like when I tell people that that movie is about the Irish Troubles who haven't seen it, they're like, wait, what? Because right. they, <laughs> they only know that it has uh, something to do with trans people. So I would say as somebody who like lived in Ireland during the 90s, during the Troubles in, yeah. in, in Dublin, like not in Northern Ireland, like I've never been to Northern Ireland. Right. My mom, who is, was born and raised there and then, you know, met my dad and then came over here. She had never been there until like five years ago. Mm -hmm. Like it was a very, day if you look at pictures of like Belfast and Northern Ireland in general from the 70s and 80s, I mean, it's bombed out. Like, like it's, it's actually violent. It was very dangerous. It was it was a war zone. It was a war zone. All, like all when the time. I say yeah. that Americans don't understand that, that's what I mean. Is like I mean there. I remember there was a tweet that went viral because someone was like talking about racial profiling at airports, and they were like, "No one gets stopped because their last name's Irish." And then everyone who was Irish was like, "Wait, wait, actually, I realized I understand the yeah, point you're making. Bad choice of a white person, like because we get stopped all the time, and certainly did." for decades, get aggressively searched airports. Especially especially in Britain. Yeah. I just want to get back to like the, the opening part of that question. You know, as somebody who is a dual national, as somebody who spent, like I said, like I lived there for a year with my family. You know, we would go there for summers. You know, we're, we're still close with our family there. Half my family lives there, obviously, right? Mm -hmm. And my dad's family are American, but they're, they're Irish Americans. So there's like, so I'm just Irish, basically. Right. 
as somebody who grew up with like that being a central part of my identity and of course getting teased for it because you know kids whatever I was always like pretty sensitive to that stuff and so when I first encountered Black Tom it was like the first of like these Irish characters that I encountered like I was kind of like cringed a little bit at the use of like the the quote-unquote like Irish slang or whatever the phonetic accent yeah phonetic boys and laddies and this and that right but but I was still happy to see that this like major character and then Siren like was in like that and so I just like fell in love with her and thought that she was the coolest and she still is she's awesome but I remember when you know like the way that I kind of filled in like the blanks of my X-Men reading was classic X-Men right so like you know you you would you go over to somebody's house and like their you know older sibling or they would have just like a huge collection of classic X Men you could just like read all of these old stories. This was like the way that it was before it was all collected, like we were talking about earlier in the show, you know, like in in the nineties. But I remember having like a visceral reaction to Banshee in the way that I didn't with the others because when he's first introduced, it's so it's bad. Heavy. Yeah, it's really bad. It's so heavy. But then you know as I continued to collect comics and get into comics and I started reading generation X where he's so gorgeous and so fun and is everyone's dad. And like, he's not, he's great. Yeah. Oirish in that way. He's, he's great. And and so I think that, I think that's just kind of like my, my long way of saying that I think that having like, I get that like some of this stuff is pretty cringy and, and I totally, and, and like, I agree with that. And like I said, like my reaction has been like that, but I think ultimately having this consequential cool family of Irish characters, like always, it always seems like one of them is like a pretty central character. Like it was Banshee for a long time. Then it was Siren. Now it's Black Tom more. It is interesting how they trade out though, right? Like it's only ever really one of them that's in the spotlight at the time. Well, I guess actually in the nineties, you have Siren and X-Force and Sean and Gen X. That was sort of the height of, of Cassidy culture in the the franchise but then sean's dead for a really long time and black tom again i think was put on ice after the austin story just unusable and then and then siren is just being like well and then peter david drove her off a fucking cliff yeah Yeah. so you know what are you gonna do but they're all now back i mean that the thing that was nicest about that declan shalvey unlimited story it's just exciting to see all three of them back to basics in a way that doesn't feel like the stories didn't happen. Like it's not a, a re cause like Tom has little flowers coming out of his face in that story. Like his, his powers are still the new powers. Siren is still the adult woman that she became over the course of many stories. Sean who feels out of place cause he was dead for so long. Now in Legion of X, Sean is now going through a whole lot of other shit following his, encounter with Moira and his current deal with Mother Righteous. So we'll see where he goes. But I have to assume that this is a temporary storyline. I don't think he's going to be like a ghost rider banshee for the rest of time. I think that we're meant to understand that he's on a journey. So it's exciting that they're all around. And I think that they just need, I think that if Siren was a cast member in a book, we would see a lot more of the family stuff in a way that would feel more genuine because there is more care taken now with verisimilitude, with cultural difference. And I think we would just see a more respectful 
tone now in a way you know you look at I mean Chris Claremont wrote a lot of Native American characters and was clearly very invested in in attempting to portray them with dignity but there were moments that were very stereotypical and you look at that compared to the way that creators are writing the proud stars or Danny Moonstar now and it's very very different and I think that that also could happen with these Irish characters because it's the same like it's not the same thing because Irish people are white but it is the same exotification of mysterious, mystical, indigenous people. I've been trying to figure out how to say it. That's exactly what it is. That's, yeah, that's what it is. It's yeah. the same. The way that Irish people, that Celts are racialized in Europe is very similar to the way indigenous people are racialized. I'm not trying to say that it's equivalent because visually we're white people. But, I mean, you know, as, a, as someone who's Irish and Jewish, it's not dissimilar to the way that anti-Semitism functions. It's just different because here in particular, it's more about, I mean, it's very similar to anti-Semitism in terms of the first story where Banshee appears, which is why I'm like, Werner Roth, you don't have to draw him like that. You should know better. Yeah, right, right. But I really do think the indigenous comparison is closer. It's this it's this occupied population that has had its culture eradicated intentionally by the imperialist state and the idea that the leprechauns and the she and the Morrigan and the banshees are all lurking beneath the surface is very similar to the idea that the demon bear and the adversary and all of the like made up Native American stuff that Claremont did functions for those characters. So I think part of it is about treating Irishness as something dignified. Instead of a joke, yeah. Yeah, and I think that that will happen more and more as the characters are used more and more in a modern context where people think about this stuff more. Yeah, and and just 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 one more thought on this like and and but is just to say that you know because of the cultural context in which Banshee was introduced I'm not talking about like the like the way that he was talking or anything but like the like the time yeah. when it was just basically it was like war and you know they were seen as terrorists and like you know we we've I've, I've come back to him working for Interpol a lot and and I think that that like they had him work I think for Interpol for a reason yes because because he is like a quote unquote it makes him terrorist. one of the good ones yeah so you have to have him do that because if you have him be like an Irish nationalist then you're introducing like a conversation that the cop well first of all the comics code isn't going to want you to have first no but second of all like your editors aren't like like nobody is going to want that conversation to be had no i mean to begin with he was a man because stan lee said they the x-men can't team up to hit a woman right because initially banshee was going to be a female character for obvious reasons since banshee means fairy woman that's what it means in irish for people who are not aware banshee woman fairy it's just one of those things where the code impacts a lot of it but it also i think a lot of younger readers are are always surprised by how pro-cop a lot of comics are if you go back and it's because the way that policing was viewed by the general white public has changed a lot over the last 30 40 years it was not so long ago that the only way to make an irish character respectable was to make him a cop yeah 
that's why that is also a stereotype because first of all there are a lot of irish american police officers in the northeast just like there are a lot of italian americans in police and in firefighting like those catholic ethnic whites were a big part of that blue collar workforce but it's also that Officer O'Flaherty or whatever was a way of having an Irishman who either you can have him be an incompetent drunk cop for laughs in that Irish stereotype way, or it's a way of saying he's Irish, but, you know, he's not Irish. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And you look at a lot of black characters and it's the same thing. A lot of black characters in early comics, Misty Knight is a police officer. Monica Rambeau was a Harbor Patrol woman. There is a way that making these characters aligned with the state is seen as defanging the things about them that would be offensive not in like the way that you would mean it like oh that's offensive but offensive to the sensibilities of sort of the average reader at the time or their parents or their parents more importantly because again like the comics code years were very concerned with what will parents think if they look at what the kid is reading and are we going to get letters of complaint from parents about xyz thing or is congress going to go in again about how we're corrupting the youth and so the fact that the only way the ira comes up for example i mean this is not i'm not expressing support for the ira to be clear however it's a very complicated topic. There are a lot of very smart people who can talk about it much more in depth than I can, but it's a much more complicated scenario and the troubles were much more complicated than you would be led to believe from media about them. The fact that the IRA factors into this story specifically in that the bad guy cousin helps fund them with weapons and they killed Banshee's wife. Yeah. It's that simple. I would say, honestly, that like in some ways, the Palestinian terrorist Jamal that Claremont creates is humanized more than the IRA is in these stories. And maybe it's because the IRA was closer to home. Maybe it's because America was directly involved in at the time in a political way in negotiating with the troubles. I, I mean, we were also involved in Israel-Palestine, obviously, but it's so far away in the middle. Like, crisis in the Middle East is something that comics never really are worried about digging into. Yeah, not in the same way. And that's not to say that their depiction of Jamail is perfect, certainly. I'm just saying there was a, a nervousness about using Ireland that I think you can really feel when you go back to these stories, unless it was the hokey, oirish mystical vision of Ireland that's like, you know, let's go down to Rosie O'Grady's pub and like think about the fey folk or whatever. Because going to modern Ireland, first of all, you're not supposed to talk too much about religion in these comics. So that's already a difficult thing to do when sectarian violence is the order of the day. Yeah, But it's also just, it was very, very current and very controversial. Positions on Ireland were really incendiary at the time in America, which I think is another thing that people just like don't, particularly if you were like in Boston or New York, which is where my parents are from. It's just something that was very real, even if you didn't have direct family there, which we did not, but it was still something that people debated about really extensively and passionately. If you were Irish, it was something that would come up. I mean, like the Irish car bomb as a joke 
now probably just feels old timey, but like in the really 90s, old timey now. Yeah. But in the nineties, it was very current. You know, that's when the cranberries are top of the charts with zombie, which is like about that. I remember, I remember watching the news. I mean, we're totally derailing here, but we're um, totally derailing. We got to get back on track soon. Right. But... So just very, just a very quick thing, just to kind of build off of what you're saying. Like, like I remember reading or watching TV on my granny's in, in, in her living room while she would smoke like a silk cut, which is a type of cigarette there. And I remember that they would, sometimes they would say, well, you know, like if you have young children, in the house you might want to send them to another room because we're going to like report on the troubles and then you know every once in a while i would stay in there for it and they it would just be just very like yeah so this is the war that is happening you know an hour and a half north of you that's been just going on it would just be bombed out cars and just you know just like this many casualties and people just screaming and and just very like especially growing up in the u.s you know at this time it would have been like i think early 90s like just a totally different experience and just like and and just trying to like wrap your head around like that happening there but again that's because i'm older like people who are in their 20s now like the idea of ireland as anything other than like you know one of the top tourist destinations in the world is just not something that probably registers like you're saying like a car bomb is like that's like a shot right exactly like that's a drink like that's a joke like but like i let me tell you what my family did not find that funny when i was a kid Oh, you know? no, 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 not at all. So it's just one of those things that I think Gen Z just does. It, it, this is one of those moments where I just feel old. But I think that the millennials in America are the last generation to have really experienced that in a way where it's front of mind. And so I think for most people now, it's just more of a thought experiment. And and that, to me, is a hopeful thing because I think these characters could be developed in more human ways without the specter of this is a current political controversial hot topic always hanging over them. It's frankly astounding that the IRA stuff was allowed at all. Yeah. Even with like, you know, like the fact that Marvel's most prominent Irish character in the nineties was a woman who was serving in a paramilitary terrorist organization that was positioned as heroic, by which I mean X-Force, was kind of shocking, too. Yeah. And that X-Force is presented as doing the right thing, even when they're bombing locations or do it, you know, to root out the MLF or whatever. But that's because, again, X-Force are the good terrorists and the MLF are the bad terrorists. So Right. Their, their violence is justified. And X-Force is not written with three letters the way that MLF is. I mean, the MLF is supposed to suggest the IRA in addition to suggesting the Black Panthers. And the PLO, probably. And the PLO, for sure. So it's just one of those, one of those, that's a name I really want them to reuse. They're reusing names in so many interesting ways in this era. And I think the Mutant Liberation Front is due for a reappraisal. But again, it's very loaded. So, you know. We shall see. Connell Gilliland writes, Hi, Connor. Loving the show. It finally saw me in this Krakoan status quo and allowed me to finally have an Exmara I could enjoy. I'm from Northern Ireland. Feel free to do the accent. It's just the usual but in minor key. <laughs> That's funny. It's true. I know. I find Northern Irish even harder to do. And right now, my voice is so shot that I'm not in an accent mood. You have to add a question mark to every, word, to every yeah, sentence Yeah, yeah. Well. Exactly. It's, it's all interrogative. I've been leery of Krakoa probably because being from Northern Ireland just turns you into having a negative sort of view of nationalism and all of that. Anyway, the podcast got me to pull my head on my arse and just enjoy it, and it's been great. 
My thing is I can't quite work out Black Tom. With most Claremont characters, you can see the stereotype very clearly, but I just can't work him out, especially when compared to how Irish Banshee is. Is Tom only defined by being the evil brother of Sean in a sort of quiet man way, the roguish rival who's vaguely Irish traveler coded, but seemingly unconsciously? I don't know, even calling him Black Tom is weird. I've heard Black Bastard as a slur for Protestants back in the day, or Black Irish is a vaguely ironic term for the few of us who tan well. Black Irish did used to have other ethnic connotations too. It's strange. He's a grab bag, I guess, of lesser known 20th century racial stereotypes. I mean, isn't he an aristocrat? They never seem to touch in his actual class. He's a castle Catholic like Sean, isn't he? And a gay coded one at that. So you think they play more with the Oscar Wilde of it all. Or are Irish people just always coded as vaguely working class by outsiders the way Australians are? Similarly, his connections to the IRA are a little weird in terms of how unexplored they've been. I think I'm too close to get the Irish stereotypes he's based on, and I know there are foreign stereotypes of us I've never encountered. I never heard about the marrying cousins one until this podcast. <laughs> I don't know. He's great fun in a sort of incomprehensible way. The most accurate thing he's ever said is mayo for Sam. God bless Ben Percy. Thanks and sorry for the endless ramble. Connell, big Irish head on Discord. So what you're identifying is kind of what we've said earlier is that he is an American Irish stereotype. And that is the thing that I think is probably what confuses Irish readers about him. The idea of the black Irish criminal is a very New York and Boston idea, right? It's like the Irish mob, it's boardwalk empire, it's all of that stuff. To me, he is very obviously based in that. I agree with you that there's a little bit of like theatrical Irish traveler vibe, but he's not a traveler. He's, like you said, a castle Catholic. I do think that the class thing goes under I mean what you say you you raise a really really good point this is a great letter by the way thank you for writing in you're absolutely on the money when you say that outsiders regard all Irish people as working class and that's also an American perception because Irish Americans typically are working class or were at the time that these characters were being produced and if you knew Irish people mostly as cops firefighters or criminals or like pub owners you're going to have that perception. The idea that there could be an Irish aristocracy is not something that Americans are super conscious of because almost every Irish American you're going to meet comes from a working class background and fled in the great hunger. Okay, go on, go ahead. This is what I'm saying. If I'm a New Yorker creating this character in 1976, I think that the ethnic stuff you're talking about does exist in Ireland, but I can't say to what extent it's still... A cultural meme there it's definitely something that irish americans talk about a lot though so just a complicated thing oh and what were you thinking well i was just gonna say that like i think that you're right like like that the 70 and, and i think that the way that people think of ireland now is as a working class people and i think a lot of that has to do with movies and art that, that have come around surrounding but the actual history of irish class warfare within irishness in America has been going on for like, you know, hundreds well, sure, of years sure. with, with like lace curtain, real lace, like the like, Boston like, Brahmins and all yeah. of that. Yeah. But I, I think it kind of, it's, it's interesting because I think of something that my, my dad told me. So my dad, so one side of his family, if you, if you trace it back far enough, like goes back to like a guy that like, like the only Irish American to like sign the constitution and like, you know, like kind mm -hmm. of like, like that, like class. And then the other class is like uh famine. Like, like that's what they right. came. 
And so I was talking to him one time about like, well, you know, like, what is what does that say about the people who stayed? Like, like, were they just too poor to leave? And he's like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like, the people who had, if you had anything, you stayed. Right. If you had nothing, you, you left. left. And so, so, so I, this is like my roundabout way of like saying like, what you're saying is completely true because what it is is that the mass influx of Irish refugees, basically, like, like, like immigrants, like, like whatever, whatever term you want to use for it. The reason that no Irish need apply was a thing is because Irish, the teeming masses yearning to breathe free, all of that shit. Irish people were seen by white Americans as an influx of undesirable blue-collar savages. That's what the perception was. It was the way that other immigration waves have been talked about. It was the way that everybody now talks about Mexican people. The way that the Irish talked about the Italians. The way that the Irish talk about black people. I mean, like, it it is an endless cycle, unfortunately, of... Like the, the pro- how proximal you can be to whiteness and who you can throw under the bus behind you. That has the history of a lot of yeah. immigration in America. You have similar stereotypes in America about the Poles, about Italians. It's that wave of immigration of like I've I've called us like ethnic whites or eggshell people on the show before because it's like not quite white enough for the country club, but white enough that like you're not impacted by segregation policies, except that that means you're in the white neighborhoods and the white like wasp types are not happy about it. Yeah. They don't, they don't want you there. And and I think, and I think that that does go to like what what we're talking about here, like, uh, like with respect to how, how Tom is, is for, and, and, and Sean and like the whole Cassidy thing here in in the comments and how they're portrayed. Like, yes, he, he does. He does fill a like I think Sean is like more of a working class coded character than Black Tom is. Yes. I mean, he's a cop. Yeah. But Black Tom is like the like the like and, and this goes right back to the top of the show. Right. We're talking about this dandy aristocrat with this huge right. collar who yes. like walks around with the cane. Like that's how but you have no actual time. money like that, I think, is the right. other key about the Cassidy's is that they are landed poor. They have this castle that is worthless. And falling apart, yeah. And falling apart, and that's all they have. They don't have family money. They have to work. And the fact that Tom turns to crime and Sean turns to police work is a very American conception of, like, this is what Irish people do. They become cops or mobsters because they don't have anything. They need to do one or the other. That's the stereotype that's being trafficked in here. And the fact that the cop is a ginger and the mobster is black Irish is like very, again, sort of an American conception of of Irish people. I think it's also really essential to think about when the X-Men debut in 1963, like it is right when the Kennedy assassination takes place. And that is the moment that the Irish become white in America. Yep. Because President Kennedy, as an American martyr, only worked if the Irish were allowed to be fully American. I mean, Kennedy was the first and until Biden only Catholic president. Kennedy had to say on the debate stage, I will not. I will not defer to the Pope. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because that was something people said about him in the primaries that, like, he is a papist, he is Catholic, he will take orders from the Vatican. There is a dual loyalty notion about Irish people and Italian people and Poles that was not dissimilar to the dual loyalty accusations about Jewish people. 
Except in this case, there was an actual leader you could point to. Like, it wasn't just conspiracy theories. It was like, there's that guy, the Pope. He's infallible. Yeah. Why, yeah, why, yeah, we yeah. can't have our leader beholden to the Pope. And so it wasn't really until Kennedy was such a, a sensation, was so popular, and then died. So you have that as as happening right when X-Men is, is launching. And then between that and the reimagining of Banshee in 1975, you have Bobby Kennedy's assassination. You have other things that, like at that point, going from Werner Roth Banshee to Dave Cochran Banshee to John Byrne Banshee to Chris Bocciolo Banshee, the physical transformation of the character is a really interesting, obvious sort of visual signifier for how acceptable and white Irish people really, were yeah. considered really to be yeah, in this right, country. Right. He becomes more and more handsome and less and less of a glib drunk. And it's just very clear. He's one of the most striking examples of a racial stereotype becoming a full character. And it's because the racial stereotype was adjacent enough to whiteness that it was easy to massage. It's a lot harder to turn a character who is a racial stereotype of a non-white ethnicity into a character that anyone wants to use because that stuff is so loaded. You have to do a lot of work on those characters, I think. Yeah, it's just really hard because it, they're often so nakedly racist, whereas this is a subtler thing. And so it was easier to sort of rescue him. But I think that it's interesting that as Banshee becomes a more respectable character, Black Tom becomes more and more and more monstrous and more and more and more the sort of Irish terrorist that, like, that's the other, you know, I mean, they bomb the World Trade Center. Yeah, they, yeah, they do. They, they blow up <laughs> one of them. Yeah. Quite like, a bit. Like, they, a lot like, of it gets blown yeah, up. Yeah, like, the tower, like, is coming down. It's like, they, it's, it's real serious terroristic violence we've gone like around a lot from the original question but in terms of what you're asking yeah he's an ethnic stereotype that you might not recognize if you don't have an irish american context because these are american comics and so the irish characters are going to be written in such a way as to be through an american lens that's what declan shalvey's story is about is that you know sean is it is in New York on St. Patrick's Day, and it's just like, what the fuck? I gotta go home because this is insane. <laughs> but like, my grandmother walked in the St. Patrick's Day parade. She was obsessed with the St. Patrick's Day parade. For her, it was essential. But she was Hell's Kitchen Irish, descended from maids and uh, cops yeah. and any number of other blue collar Irish immigrants who came in, about Teamsters, I mean, all of that because of the circumstances in which most Irish immigrants came to this country and then the complicated American racial framework that they had to assimilate themselves into and find a place in and how fraught all of that shit is. And that's why he's Black Tom. I do think it's a little dated, but I also think it works. And the sliding times, it's like Colossus and Karma. You have to keep it, so you have to make it work now without explicitly tying it to a specific moment. And I think that what they're doing with him right now makes a ton of sense and, and does work in that way. 
Serb writes, dear Connor and esteemed guest Serb from the Discord here, she, her, got some questions about Black Tom. I'm from Central New York, which I say every time just so I can hear someone from New York City admit that Central New York is real. You are absolutely real. <laughs> you, you are valid. I am always arguing that Central New York is real because I hate when people call Westchester upstate, which it is not. I'm pretty heavily Irish American. I think that adding the American bit to would probably make my grandmother slap me over, but I feel is appropriate context for questions about these characters. We know that Black Tom is a career criminal who was active during a period of time in which the IRA was heavily active. It also feels like he's probably more into the Republican ideas than perhaps his cousin Sean was, just based on where they spend most of their time, organizations they work for, and a couple lines here and there. So it doesn't feel wild to say that at the very least he probably provided a level of support for the organization similar to what North Star's level for the Quebecois Liberation Front was retconned to being, if not more. This is just context for me asking you if you think he's ever blamed himself for the fact that Maeve died in an IRA bombing, or if part of the hatred toward Banshee is that Sean joined Interpol, and Black Tom might view that as having made Maeve and Sean's family more of a target. I could also imagine Sean blaming Tom for similar reasons. Not sure if any of this has ever been drawn out on page because it's both a sensitive topic and like a little weird with sliding timescale stuff. Hope you guys are having a great time recording the episode. That's exactly why it hasn't been teased out on page. It was such a hot controversial topic that I think they just weren't going to touch it too much but I do think it's the subtext of their entire relationship that Sean resents Tom for funding the rebellion that killed his wife and Tom resents Sean for collaborating with the oppressor and putting a target on his family's back by working with the British so it's a bit of both and it's it's yeah. part of it's part of their dynamic that the sliding timescale makes it difficult to untangle now. Yeah, I think probably that the explanation of those two that makes the most sense to my reading of the character, I think is probably that I don't think that he really thinks that Sean made a target. Well, no, he, yeah, I think that in his heart, he probably believes that he is the one to blame, that he's yes. the one to blame. And I think that he projects that Yes. onto Sean as a way of trying to get rid of some of his self-loathing for like 10 seconds for the first time ever, but it doesn't the work. He always he emphasizes, up, yeah. The thing that he always emphasizes is that you left, you left us, you left her, you left Ireland. And right. that's how it's sort of phrased is that you left and I stayed here with the land. Right. Right. And 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 so that 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 is, I I think that he he feels strongly about this having happened, and and the reason that I just the, the just the reason that I think that is just for the way that he acts towards you know every, everybody with with what happened to the to Squid Boy and like all, like you you have a character that's just racked with guilt, which is a very like that's a very Irish thing. To be mm -hmm. racked with guilt, that's perfect. So, and yeah, I think that he's just, a, just a generally angry person. But I think that just generally just comes from self loathing. Like, that's how I how I read it. And and so I think that he does blame himself. But I don't know how the sliding timescale, how you would work that. I think that maybe because the thing is that if you sliding timescale it to Tom being, you know, in his twenties and helping to fund the IRA. Well, at that point, he's helping to fund the real IRA, right. which is a lot different than funding the IRA. And then you have some complicated questions I mean, like, answered. Yeah. I, I, for example, I don't think that Black Tom would fund the kind of people who killed Lyra McKee 
two years ago. You know what I mean? Or, right, God, right, how long yeah. ago was that now? I COVID Maybe, has uh, completely three? destroyed my, yeah. yeah. But I'm just saying like, there's a very big difference between like a lot of those IRA people. And this is, here's the thing guys, like it's, it's hard to talk about this stuff because it is still very controversial, but like a lot of people in the Irish government now, there's a whole political party that was born from the OG IRA that is a major political party and won a plurality last time and is going yeah, to win a plurality this I time. Mean, and what happens when they win a plurality, just to talk about how controversial it is, when they win a plurality, what happens is that the other two parties who, man, I'm going to try, I'm going to try and keep this like really, really condensed. The other two parties basically. And this is Sinn Fein we're talking about. Sinn Fein, yeah. So Sinn, Sinn Fein is, is the IRA, but, but the, the, the other two parties are basically like the two sides of the civil war because after, the minute that Ireland got independence, they immediately started fighting each other. Immediately. And they were kind of, well, they kind of sort of had in, I'm, I'm not going to go into like the whole details, but basically like these are the two sides, right? Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, the two sides of that conflict. And they are so anti Sinn Féin getting power that they ally and have, have a have a government they together. Create, rather. They yeah. hate each other, but they work so hard to ensure that the PM is not going to be from yeah. Sinn Féin. And, and it actually so, doesn't have anything to do with nationalism at this point. It has to do with the fact that Sinn Féin is, is pretty left-wing. Is leftist. I mean, are, that's the other... Very right-wing. Yeah. At this but. point, it's it's that, which is... But that's also what makes it complicated because if you're a progressive and you're interested in Irish politics, you have to support Sinn Féin, except that that involves supporting people who were, quote-unquote, terrorists in some cases and dealing with all of that. And Irish politics is very complicated and... yeah. That's again why a lot of this hasn't been been touched in depth in the comics because it is for the same reason that I don't think you see a lot of Sabra anymore. You know, it's just really incendiary to a lot of people, and I think it's generally seen as like not necessarily worth it if it's not something that you personally care about. Like, why invoke that in your superhero comic and have people yelling at you about? something complicated that, that you don't necessarily know everything about. So, yeah, I mean, I don't think at this point that you would want to dig too deep into it because the sliding time scale, I mean, it's specifically what Owen is saying about like, which IRA are we talking about? Are we talking about him funding them after the Good Friday Agreement? Because that's very different. Yeah. Yeah. So I just don't think that it works. I think you bring them into the present by having Sean be someone who is more of a moderate and having Tom be an Irish nationalist. And I think that you can do that because Irish nationalism and Irish republicanism, this is the other problem in talking about these concepts in America, are not the scary words that they would sound like here. <laughs> yeah, not, not at all. Yeah. It's the belief that the six counties of Northern Ireland should be returned and that Ireland should be reunified and the occupation should end. There are a lot of Northern Irish people who now, after decades and decades, don't want to be part of Ireland again. And that's what, it, I mean, the thing that's most consequential, I think, it will be very funny if what finally does it is Brexit, because Northern Ireland voted aggressively against Brexit, and then Brexit happened, and now Northern Ireland is being dragged along in yeah, the free fall that is Brexit, and they're not happy about it. But this is all, I mean, this is not a reunification podcast. So I, I don't think, like, you know, I just think that having Tom be the person who feels that way and having Sean be the person who thinks that the Good Friday Agreement was sufficient 
is I think the the modern way to to deal with that if you wanted to deal with it. But I'm more interested in exploring the idea of Sean as the one who left and Tom is the one who stayed, especially now that Tom is the land in a real sense. There is something to the idea, like again, the comparison's not exact, but the idea of the Irish people as an indigenous population who have been dispossessed it's not unlike some of the stuff we talked about last week with Manifold and Gateway. The idea that the sacred land is embodied in Black Tom is, I think, a, an interesting place to take it going forward. It is an interesting parallel with, with, with last week's. Yeah. And there are a lot of interesting little parallels there. He is the fairy mound now. There is something yeah. very powerful about that. Christopher Link writes... Question about Black Tom Cassie with a chance to try your charming accent. I'm sorry, my voice is shot. Guten Tag, Connor. Und Podcast. Greetings from Germany. Of course, I would like to begin by saying thank you for Cerebro. While I consider myself an X-Men fan, I mostly consume them through secondary media, be it videos, memes, or this podcast. And I have had so much fun learning about all those characters. And that is in part thanks to you and the amazing platform you have created. Now for my question. In the Krakoa era, there are two characters I find really interesting because it is the Krakoa era, Black Tom and Doug Ramsey. They are not only citizens of Krakoa, but are able to experience the island like no other through communicating with it or by feeling it to an unimaginable extent. We did learn that this connection is taking a toll on Tom's mind and Krakoa appears to trickle into his mind. Do you believe his role will be even more important for the time to come? Will he learn to manage it better? Will he be seen as more important? Or might Krakoa actually turn out to be his downfall? Interested to hear your thoughts. Also, West Chris Link. I think the place to look for this is whatever is spinning up with the Phalanx right now in Legion of X, which is the book that Banshee's in. I would not be surprised if, because we, we, we had the tease that Doug and Warlock's tinkering with the island is affecting Tom as well. I would hope that it's not his downfall. I would hope that he's becoming something more, something bigger, something powerful, something that he did finally leave the land. He left Cassidy Keep, but he's found a new land that he that he loves and that is his home too, and that he will defend it and, and that he will have the ability to sense infection in a way that other people won't. And I think that that will be interesting. So I don't know, and I try not to speculate too much about future stories, both because I know a lot of the writers working on this stuff and because, you know, I've reached a point in my quote-unquote career where like you never know what opportunities might come my way I'm writing comics myself now so I, I don't want to give too many thoughts about yeah. the future but I, I think that if it's going to happen anywhere outside of X-Force Legion of X is where I would look because that's where Banshee is it's where the phalanx is starting to infect the island that feels like the place where it will click together if it if it's going to you know we were kind of talking about a little bit lightly earlier like that kind of like sweet and 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 kind of funny moment where he has a dream about juggernaut and then dreams up the 50 foot statue of kane well i kind of wonder is that like being put in there to kind of show that actually he has a power set a power part of his power set that we really aren't even exploring is he like able to make golems right is he able to like you know like it is so th there's there's a lot of of stuff going on right now and with like everything else that's going on but i don't i don't think that i guess what i'm trying to say is i i don't know if he is going to 
have it be his downfall. I think that it's 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 kind of, this is kind of like part of his evolution and things like things like that 50 foot statue things like him being able to make himself really small and like 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 they detach himself and then just kind of become part of Krakoa I think is going to become like continue to be important and get more important. Yeah, I agree. I absolutely agree. I'm going to read two related questions now because I couldn't decide which one to read, but they're basically the same question. So I'm just going to read them both really quick. Christopher Walker writes, Greetings, Connor and Owen. Love the pod and all I've learned from the areas I hadn't read yet. Sitting, listening while gaming and having more what-the-fuck moments than I've had with any other podcast. My question, we know Juggernaut is a huge Dazzler fan. This person's Scottish, by the way. This, if To the Irish people listening, I'm not. This is I'm me trying to do Scottish, but I, I do have laryngitis. Yeah. <laughs> We know Juggernaut is a huge Dazzler fan. Your comparison of her to Kylie Minogue in the 80s really helped my friends understand how much Kane freaked out when he thought he'd killed her. But do we know if Tom likes her too? Or does he hear Kane playing her music over and over while tied in the house and want to smash a wall? Who do you think is his diva? Side note on music, Moira's Ten Lives is a great twist, but do you think there are singers of songs from other lives that have never appeared in this one? Is there a life where Robin had a song that's more of a banger than Dancing on My Own? If I had that knowledge and couldn't listen to it again or tell people because they think I'm mad, then Myra might deserve a small pass. Thanks for everything. Looking forward to episode 100. Chris in Glasgow, Kissy4647 on Twitter. And then Connor McCombs writes, Hello, Connor, an esteemed guest, long time, first time, yada yada. I'm finally caught up enough to submit a question and couldn't miss a chance to ask about a dramatic queen like Black Tom. I'm sure by now there have been plenty of jokes about him blasting from his wood. That's actually the first one. <laughs> but you're right. It's funny. Streamer is the reason I started reading X-Men comics. Oh, that makes me so happy. And found the queer site of X Twitter, RIP. Well, we'll see. I still never know what's going on with Twitter. I don't. I, I think it's easier to not look at it now, which is kind of nice. You bring such nuance to the way you and your guests discuss the comics while keeping it fun and thoroughly queer. And it's been such a joy to listen along with you, although I listen at 1.8 speed, so I'm not sure I've ever actually heard your normal voice. That's so funny. I hope you have an app that adjusts the pitch, because otherwise I'm going to sound totally insane at, at 1.8 times anyway we know that juggernaut's a huge dazzler stand does tom worship our favorite queer ally ally or does his taste in music differ widely compared to his himbo husband and if so what artist would tom drop everything to go see either way i like to imagine tom holding dazzler merch while watching lovingly as kane charges the stage make mine cerebro and i hope you survive the experience connor aka generic gay joke on twitter and discord thank you both for writing in this is a great question and this is again my irish american perspective but i can't help but think that tom loves enya yes yes that was what i was going to go for 100 enya ni for sure no clonad all of it yep he loves an orinoco flow moment who can say only time like you know he's he he and kane have absolutely made love to the whole amarantine album like and kane is just like i do not get this but it's fine i'm doing it for you because you know we, we yeah. you listen to my music i'm gonna listen to yours yeah if i were making a black tom playlist like i'm just picturing him tromping through the hills of Krakoa to like Boudica, the it's boadicea because it's like the old anglicization but like that instrumental where it's like -na 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 -na, like uh, that's just Enya's voice making noises that's like him in the hills yeah he's bumping it that's my call and I'm sticking to it I think he also loved Dolores Riordan and was like really upset when she died because I certainly was and I think that he also likes the band Horse Lips which is an Irish rock band that are kind of like 
rock and folk put together who my parents used to listen to and I've been listening to for a long time. So I'm just going to project that onto him. But he also likes that. I think he's like a little too femme for like Dropkick Murphy's kind of stuff. Like I don't oh, see yeah, no, that. No, no, no. But, not that. But like, not oh, that. um, and Sinead, duh. Yes. Huge yeah. Sinead yeah. fan. But I mean, who isn't? If you're not, you're crazy. Anything that has like kind of, that's kind of like, I don't know, like kind of airy and like has like the Irish music in it. He would be into Kate Bush, especially her like weird Irish moments like Night of the Swallow, Army Dreamers. Thin Lizzy, definitely. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And like Kane plays Come on Eileen as like a joke when he's like wants to get frisky and it's an inside joke between them. That's... I buy it. I buy it. <laughs> Fia Katsi writes, Hello, Connor and esteemed guest. I love your podcast, Connor, and was really happy when I heard you were doing an episode on Black Tom Cassie, a character I really love from the few appearances I read him in, and I'm sure that this episode will make me love him even more. Now, on to my questions. One, what theme do you guys think that Tom and Kane's wedding will be when Kane finally goes for the Krakoa green card? Who will be their respective best man or woman, and what will their bachelor parties be like? How awkward will Charles's wedding speech be? Will he even be invited? I can't answer this because I would like to write this someday. <laughs> so... <laughs> All right, I'll, ple- I'll plead the fifth on it too then. Yeah, well, I mean, it's like, we're just gonna, we gotta put a pin in that, but I love, I love where your brain's going. Two, has a story ever really delved into Tom's disability? I've read the story where a banshee eats him off a cliff and causes his leg injury, but has a comic ever delved into his thoughts about it and how it affects his life? Thanks for the amazing podcast and for getting me into X-Men comics. Regards, Fia. P.S. I'm Swedish, and I cracked up when you tried to do the Swedish accent a couple of episodes ago. That was really bad, Fia. My apologies. His disability is something that has been de-emphasized since the 90s because they sort of steadily took it away by giving him the planty powers that, that made him not need to use a cane. But we know that, well, he uses a cane, but not a, not a chalet right. anymore. <laughs> no, but I, I think that part of it is... He's the kind of character like Charles where he really resented it. So if you're looking at it from a disability politics perspective, he is not the kind of... It, to him, It was it's something that was done to him. I don't think he would like identify himself as like a person with a disability. Like, he was just sort of like, Sean broke my leg and now I limp and I hate it because it makes me feel less fancy and sexy, you know? So I think that having it repaired in whatever sense was a really liberating experience for him. And it doesn't seem to be something that's really the case anymore on Krakoa. I would say that his disability now is that he has a lot of mental confusion that has to do with being more of a gestalt entity and being more of like a hive. But that is closer to different kinds of attention deficit or obsessive stuff or or dissociative stuff that it's mental more than it is physical. I think that he was to some extent at his introduction a little bit like we've talked about sort of this the problematic things that he's trafficked. There's a little bit of the like disabled villain where his disability is something spooky you know like his power is that he uses to kill people is directly connected with his walking stick. So there's some of that, like the sinister cripple stereotype. Yeah. And so I think moving away from that was probably good. On the other hand, there aren't that many characters who walk with a cane. So we did lose that. I don't know. What do you think, Owen? I think, I think, I think that's all pretty much right. I I think 
you know, he's maybe not someone who I think I I I I feel like he would he would feel more it would upset him more that he's always being infantilized by being carried around by Kane mm-hmm. rather than being able to like, you know, beat a haste to retreat himself, you know? He really hated when Kane had to carry him around. Like that made him feel really emasculated. Yeah. He always felt emasculated by comparison to Sean to begin with. So then for Sean to injure him in such a way that made him feel even unmanlier is just like, you know, it's just, a, it was tough. It was tough for him. Yeah. Has this all been teased out in great detail? No, it has not. Because the modern concept of disability politics was not something that was really a topic of discussion in the mainstream at the time that most of Black Tom's stories were told. And it's been a long time since he was a prominently disabled character. So it's just not something that really comes up anymore. Yeah. Zach from Cumbria writes, Dear Connor and guest, this ain't really about the flamboyant forest fag himself, but more the concept of familial mutations and inheriting powers. I like the idea of relatives having similar powers like the Summers family, but maybe some people don't, so I'm wondering what your opinions are. Do you think mutant kids should have, you know, their parents' power, a mix of both, or their own? Also, I doubt he's even reached double digits, let alone a whole Zaladane, but I'd like to mention Ray's, the bastard son of both Mystique and Wolverine, who's actually got both of his parents' powers, at least his mention somewhat connected to what I'm saying. Anyway, love the pod and what you do. Keep it up, Zach from Cumbria. So I tend to not like it. I've said this before. I think that it's fine in some cases like Magneto and Polaris or, you know, telepaths producing other telepaths makes sense to me. But I like, for example, that Sean and Black Tom don't have powers that are related in any way. I do think it works that Siren, though, has Banshee's power because it's a reminder to Tom that she's not his, right? There's just, I I think that sometimes it's, I, I really hate. For example, characters like that son of Mystique and Wolverine who has both of their powers like you bred Pokemon together. I think that that's really dumb. No disrespect to the people who've created characters like that. Like I find Ruby Summers intolerable. And I, I just generally am like, that's not how it should work. That's just my my hot take. I do like that Banshee and Black Tom have the Summers family and Frost family thing where their powers don't work on each other. Banshee hurt Tom's leg by collapsing the area around him, not by sonically shattering it or anything because their their powers don't work on each other. And that doesn't make any goddamn sense if you think about it for more than 10 seconds. Much less sense than it does with the Frosts who are psychics or with the Summerses who all have energy powers. Like the fact that my sonic scream can't affect you and your energy blast can't affect me does not really make any sense at all, but it's fine. It's whatever <laughs> yeah you just kind of you just kind of it's like... a case where i like it because they have that it's ironic given that tom is with kane in whatever sense but like they have that kane and abel thing where they're in constant sort of brotherly tension and i think that it, it works well cyclops and havoc have a similar vibe so i like that they can't just blast each other they have to talk right yeah so yeah the one thing i'd add to that is i do like that moira in order to have proteus finds another human yes with the specific genetic mutation i think that's really cool that retcon in house of x is really smart i mean it is horrific to think that she did it on purpose because it changes everything we thought we knew about her 
I get why Chris Claremont didn't like that very much. But if she's going to do it, the fact that she did it by analyzing the genetic structure of like potential mates and stuff. It's not just, she didn't just find a reality warper and have a child with him. Right. Cause that's not really how it works and it shouldn't really be how it works. Rachel writes, greetings, Connor and esteemed Owen. I'm so excited you're finally covering my favorite Gunkel. I have a soft spot for the older gay villain couples. And ever since the mystique and destiny renaissance began, I've been hopeful that Tom and Kane might get more focus too. I think an interesting parallel between mystique and destiny and Tom and Kane, besides both being elder evil gay couples, is the way destiny and mystique function as an interdependent disabled couple and each takes the role of caretaker for each other at different times. I noticed Kane doing the same thing for Tom, whose mutation is mentally disabling. Both Mystique and Kane also lost their lovers in the 80s and 90s, with it being a very explicit AIDS allegory in the case of Kane and Tom. I really hope Marvel lets their relationship be on page soon, because I think there's so much potential in focusing on them more. Similar to what's been touched on with Somnus, a gay man unable, who was unable to live his full truth through the time period he was born in, now getting a second chance. If well executed, I think it could be a particularly powerful narrative, as Tom is allegorically a victim of the AIDS epidemic. Tom and Kane walked so characters like those twinks from Gen X Volume 2 could run. I'd like to see them get the recognition they deserve. I agree with you wholeheartedly, and thank you for expressing all this. My question is, what are your thoughts on the domestic life of Cain and Tom and Teresa? Did Teresa grow up in a two-father household? Do you think she considers Cain to have been a surrogate father her in the same way Tom was? Do you think Tom and Cain ever had a wedding ceremony or ever would? How long do you think they've been together in universe? I picture them as having been together since at least Teresa was little, but maybe that's just my wishful thinking. They just have the vibe of a couple who's been together for decades. Also, what do you think the vibe is like between Cain and Sean, who are essentially brothers-in-law? Do you think Tom and Cain are living together on Krakoa now? I wish Marvel would just make a giant-sized black Tom and Juggernaut already. Sorry that ended up being a lot of questions. I'd just love to hear your thoughts on how you think Kane does or doesn't fit into the Cassidy family beyond his husband. I know they still aren't confirmed textually to be life partners, but let's be real here. Thank you as always for the amazing content. I'm so grateful to you, Connor, and all the guests who spend hours on analyzing the X-Men. I've learned about so much more than just my favorite franchise through this podcast. You remind me of why I love storytelling. Make mine cerebro. Rachel, the Neon Thorn on Twitter and Discord. Rachel, that's really sweet. Thank you so much. The implication is that he has been around since shortly after Sean left the second time, like after Maeve died. It's when Sean came back with Interpol and like had Tom sent to prison that Tom in prison meets Kane. So I think that's when Teresa is a teenager. And that's when they meet. Most of Teresa's childhood, as I said earlier, is a little inconsistent because it doesn't make a ton of sense that Sean didn't ever find out about her. So you have to kind of hand wave a lot of stuff. That's it a little bit, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So my sense is that he sends Terry away to private school when she's like 12 or 13. That's when Tom gets sent to prison and meets Kane. So I don't think that she grew up as a little girl with Kane, but I think she definitely recognizes who Kane is to Tom in those 90s stories and she doesn't seem to regard him as like a father but it's very there's a stepfather vibe she's aware that this is like tom's person is the vibe that you get i would like to think that they're all a family now on krakoa it just hasn't ever really been acknowledged that way because kane and tom's relationship has never been acknowledged that way on page but again mystique and destinies wasn't really until very recently so hope springs eternal on that I would like to think that at this point it's been long enough, even with the sliding time scale, that Terry does absolutely think of him as family. I mean, she certainly knows 
that it was him and Jimmy Proudstar who arranged for her and Tom to meet up at Maeve's grave in X-Force 31. She knows that he did all this stuff to look out for Tom. And she knows him well enough that she was doing crimes with them, you know, like, but, but I, he wasn't there when she was a little girl, just to answer your question there, because we know roughly when they met and it's after Teresa leaves for boarding school and starts drinking. Mike Layton writes, hello, ever nearing centennial celebration, Connor and esteemed guest. It's fascinating to write a letter about a character I never had a single thought about until this podcast. It was thanks to you and your wonderful guests that I feel any connection to the black sheep of the Cassidy clan. As the oddball of my own family, I can't help but feel some genuine concern and connection about Black Tom, and now I'm working up the nerve to eventually start reading his history prior to the Krakoan age. My question's an odd one as it ties into his partner, Kane, and something that was teased ages ago, Juggernaut's alternate future son, J2, from the MC2 Spider-Girl Earth. Since Kane and Tom helped raise Teresa, do they want a second child? Does Tom want a bouncing baby boy? Or would he think he did great the first time and not want to risk a second? I just can't help but remember learning there was a tease in the 616 continuity for J2's mom briefly meeting Kane and wondering about that ever since. Thank you, and I hope you both have a fantastic and wonderful day. Mike, a.k.a. Cinema Freak X from the Discord. I do not acknowledge that reality as, again, any acknowledgement of the juggernaut as having interest in women is non-canonical to me. However, I think that for Tom, it was all Terry. And I, I don't think he would want to... I think he thinks he did a bad job, is the thing. And is guilty about that. But I think that if Kane asked him to, he would. That he would. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree so, with that. Yeah, I, I think I think that's, that's kind of the... He wouldn't volunteer to do it. No. But if he was asked to do it, he would. For sure. Sam B writes, hello, Connor and guest. First, I just want to say how much I love this podcast. Now it's gotten me into the X-Men comics. I was young when the first X-Men movies came out, and of course, at the time, thought they were great. Unfortunately, that in some video games have always been my only knowledge of the characters, so this podcast has really blown my mind with all the characters, and now I would ride or die for most of them. My question is pretty simple and will be answered in the episode, but I thought I would still ask, what the fuck is up with Black Tom Cassidy's skin? Does it always have that weird, like, vine running through it thing going on, or just when he uses his power? I've really only seen him in a few Krakoa books, and I think the anime series but i can't remember if i've seen him just normal or not also does juggernaut find it hot thank you so much for all you do and for introducing me to so many amazing characters and storylines you've also shown me that there's always space for queer people in comics when i never really thought that much about it before i now believe every comic character is at least bi because there's always just a little bit of gay subtext between everyone haha <laughs> sincerely sam b well that's my approach it's new is the answer. It is a more recent way of depicting his power as something he can turn on and turn off. It used to be really all or nothing because he didn't really have control over it. So it would evolve and he would turn to a plant guy and then it would roll back and he would be a regular guy again. And now it's more of a transitional state the way that Emma's diamond form or Colossus's metal form is. And I think that that's the way to go because it marries the, the two versions of the character that are identifiable to people and I like it I think it's fun but it is something he can turn off he can just look like a regular guy if he wants to but he's so attuned with Krakoa right now that usually he's like vibing out plant style I don't know if Juggernaut thinks it's hot I think it would remind him of the weird times that they've had previously but I think it would be exciting to him to see how much control over his power Tom now has I think I think that for the latter part of the question I, I think that Juggernaut, just like anybody else who is on Krakoa, most of them obviously are mutants, but I think that if you go there to that world and that reality and that situation where everyone's functionally immortal, like you have your own country now where, you know, everything's taken care of for you, everybody's around, like, I think that 
the idea of of like uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is like the idea of like regular what we consider regular beauty standards would just be completely out of the door. Like I don't even think that he would he would think about it after a while. Like the fact that Tom yeah. has a vine growing out of his face, like he's like he's walking around mutants who have maybe much more you know, explicit extroverted. Both those words are wrong, but you know what I'm saying. Like 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 those kinds of mutations. And so I think that that's one thing about the Grakoa era that they haven't delve into too much i think that i think is really interesting is just how that society is just completely different than everything that they've come from before and so that like their ideas of what everything is are just completely different and and at this point i almost feel like because it's been a few years and they've been are are becoming more and more alien to like the way that that we would understand any of this stuff mm-hmm. if that makes sense no i think that makes a ton of sense and i think that for like Kane loved Tom even when Tom was a tree. So I don't think that it phases him too much. It's just like, I think that what would matter to him is, are you in control? Are you okay? And since Tom seems to be more okay than he's been in the past, that that would be the the heartening good thing. Jojo Seems writes, Serious Con and esteemed guest, Hattie from sunny Arizona, longtime listener, first time writer, inner. First, please allow me to say, like everyone, how much I love and appreciate the podcast. Serves a bright spot in the lives of both myself and my partner when we listen to it together. For me, because I've read so many X Men comics in my life, and for my partner, because they've read so few. We both really appreciate the way your show manages to blend really thoughtful, cogent literary commentary on a genre fiction that's often thought of as silly with a barrage of jolly good times, chuckle fun jokes, and japes that prove that, yes, it actually is that silly too. Oh, well, thank you so much. This brings us to the man of the hour. I just had to write in when I saw that you were going to do an episode focusing on my very favorite mutant of all, Black Tom Cassidy. Even though Black Tom is very much a tertiary figure in the grand narrative of the X-Men, I truly do find him one of its most captivating figures. I find every small detail implied about this weedy goth is just the best thing. Here's one of my favorites. In X-Force 81, more Polina, etc. from 1998, Terry makes a casual reference to how Black Tom had a satellite dish installed at Cassidy Keats so they could watch TV. And she implies that she has a lot of happy childhood memories of watching old B-horror movies with her uncle absolutely charming so my question for you is this what is black tom cassidy's favorite vincent price movie this is an excellent question does he scream to the tingler does he find house on haunted hill so amusing the particular gothic horror themes of house of usher remind him of his own family in a way that's cathartic did he formerly love the fly before his own life became a nightmarish cavalcade of repeated body horror transformation weirdness or maybe he really digs dr goldfoot in the bikini machine honestly i think you'd have to work pretty hard to find a wrong answer for this one thanks again for a wonderful show and keep up the good work yours sincerely jojo seems do you have any thoughts on that are you a vincent price fan i am not so i will go with i will go with your call okay i think he would love house of wax which is one of price's big breakthroughs that got him into the horror scene it was sort of what established him as a horror star it's 1953 it's a remake of a mystery at the wax museum from the 30s which is like a pre-code horror movie Mystery of the Wax Museum, excuse me. But House of Wax is a fun one. It stars Vincent Price as a sculptor who murders people and turns them into displays for his wax museum. And I think that the introduction story with Black Tom where he turns Cassidy Keep into like a death trap machine is very that. Like it's very that kind of like campy serial killer 40s 50s movie vibe. So so that is my vote, but I think that these are all good suggestions and I love the idea of him and Terry watching B movies together in part because that is something that my dad and I grew up doing. So it it, it makes me feel a kinship to Terry that I that I enjoy. Arno Fresnel writes, Dear Connor and Owen, first, thank you for the podcast. I recently had a very intense beginning of term as a lecturer and listening to episodes before and after long days of teaching was comforting and brought me joy. 
I recently became enamored with Black Tom thanks to his new role on Krakoa and learning about his historic relationship with Juggernaut. I was wondering what are your thoughts on a Black Tom Cassie or Poison Ivy encounter if there was a DC versus Marvel series. Would they bond as queer criminals? Would Tom be too much for Ivy? Would they talk about their chaotic partners? Have a great time recording the episode, Arno. P.S. Hearing my full name on the Feral episode was unexpected and so funny because now I wonder if one day one of my students will ask me about X-Men when I blabber about the subjunctive. If anybody does not want me to read their full name, please specify that in the email because I do just do it without thinking. I try to be conscientious if the signature is different but I like we get so many I love the idea of Black Tom and Poison Ivy having like a gay criminals day I think they have similar energy in a lot of ways and I think that it would be super fun they both have been written as total psychos sometimes by writers who I think didn't quite nail it and I think other times they've been written as a really fun balance of the kind of wackiness that could happen when you when you are merge with the natural world in a way that other people don't understand. So I, I like that comparison. I think it's funny. Thank you for that idea because I'm having fun imagining it. I don't think it'll ever happen, but I think I, I think rather than Tom being too much for Poison Ivy, I think it'd be uh, she would be around. too much for yeah. him. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree. She's really intense, and he is pretty laid back most of the time. And I think that she would freak him out a little, but that he would also be into whatever scheme she had afoot, as long as it could also like. Here's the thing. She wants to save the earth and he's much more into like, how do I make money doing this thing? So I think ideologically she'd be a bit much for him, but that they would I, have I think, fun I think their first meeting, doing like plant she, crimes. she would just, yeah, she would just like steamroll him and overwhelm him and he'd be like, okay, like I don't, but then I think that like they, they, they would find something, maybe plants, you know, or maybe mm -hmm. just like doing crime or, or, or maybe something different, like, and that they would bond over that and that he would and then i but i think you're right i think then after that he would just be with her she she like she would be the boss she'd be in she would be the boss for sure Tyler Sharp writes, Gee, Connor and guests, I'm gay from Ohio, so if there's an accent, I don't know what it is. Black Tom seemed upset that people think he's Dracula, given how angry Kane got on his behalf. So what other roleplay sexual fantasies do they prefer over vampirism? I like to imagine Kane suggested a she-themed roleplay and Tom was offended. Regards, Tyler Bollicle on Twitter. I don't know about their role play proclivities i could see like a sailor fantasy when they were on their super yacht for that period but mostly i just feel the need to stress because people have asked on twitter a couple of times now i just want to be 1000 percent clear that black tom is the top in that relationship and don't get it twisted so was oscar wilde <laughs> i believe it blouse writes he's representation that's really important Last question, Mike Chu writes, do you think Banshee and Black Tom have ever banged it out? On the one hand, they're cousins, but on the other hand, they're Irish mutants. Anyway, thoughts? I think Tom really wants to, and that is the subtext of a lot of their interactions, but that they have not. And that that is something that will never, ever be touched in a comic book, because as you point out, they are cousins. But I do think that that is the subtext of a lot of this stuff, particularly the Maeve stuff and the Terry stuff to some extent also. Yeah, th this actually brings something up that I wanted to mention like hours ago, which is that when we were talking about like the B story in classic X-Men where Tom is is out on a date with Maeve. So I was just remembering like the artist, like his Tom's body language is completely uninterested in her. Yeah. Like he's just not interested in her at all. Everything that he's doing is basically like for and about Sean. And that's all he talks about. That's all like he's interested in. So I I just thought of that, like, because like you're saying that that's what Sean wants. I think that if he, that's what he needs, but 
but he obviously can't he can have never it. have it. Yeah. Right. And he knows that that would be inappropriate, so he's never pursued it. But I think that it's absolutely what he wants. But listen, he found happiness with Kane, and that's what matters. So it all worked out okay. But I do think that that's a strong subtext to their conflicted relationship. Well, Owen, thank you so much for being my guest. And thank you all, listeners, for listening to me with laryngitis for three hours. I would love to get any final thoughts you may have, Owen, before we wrap up. And otherwise, I'd love to hear anything you want to plug and you can tell the listeners where to follow you on social media. Yeah, I think for kind of last thoughts, I think Black Tom is a really interesting character and I'm really glad that we got to do this story. And I'm and I'm glad as well. And and I really mean this that, you know, that that I discovered this podcast because honestly, like I was I, I read Hawksbox and I was like, this is really interesting, but I don't know. And I think I think it is like one of the best superhero comics I've ever read. But I was like, I don't really know like kind of where to go from here. And in listening to the pod, I was able to kind of get a sense of like where everybody was at. So I really appreciate that. And that also like when I first pitched Gideon and then Black Tom, I had no idea about like how important Black Tom had become in Krakoa. Right. So yeah. I, like, I was like, you got a lot of reading that. to do because he's he's yeah. big again. Getting to discover that was just I was really like, we'll cool. get to Gideon whenever he has a storyline. Right, right. Yet. Yeah. Yeah. He I mean, he's just more interesting for for like the powers, the power set. But it was just really cool to be able to discover all of that in the context of reading in advance of coming on here. And talking about it because it was just like a like it was a way of being able to like follow the character's progression and i think that it's really interesting i'm really glad that we did this because i think that he is a really fascinating character now especially like i think much more than he has been in the past and so it's 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 fun to be like well this is a character that i always found interesting and exciting and then to be like oh no actually like they're incredibly interesting and exciting now and like Mm -hmm. So that was a lot of fun. As far as where people can find me on social media, I am on Twitter for as long as uh, it exists. We're on the Titanic until it sinks, but yep. we'll see what happens. And that's at, at Owen Higgins underscore at E-O-I-N-H-I-G-G-I-N-S underscore. I don't post there anywhere near the level that I used to, but I'm still on there and I, I promote like stuff that I do for my job and, and for other stuff. And you can also find my newsletter on there, which is owenhiggins.substack.com. That may be moving, but I'm not really sure what's going on with it right now. It's kind of on pause. But if you kind of wanted to like keep up with me and know that like, you know, you you would be able to keep up with my work, that would be the one to go to. Because again, I don't know, like, I don't I don't know if Twitter is going to still exist by the time that this is this comes out or or whenever people are listening to it. But it's 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 possible that it could fall in a, in a number of different ways. So I think I think that's probably the best way to do it. But. Yeah, again, I, I've I've been trying to like take a big step back from social media in general, like over the last like three or four months. I have too, especially quite honestly, as the pod gets bigger, and that sounds like a weird flex or something, but it's not. It's just that like I I feel now I get stressed out when I feel like obligated to engage. And I'm trying to just like disconnect from that a little bit, especially like Twitter is crazy these days. So I'm just like, let's break that habit if we can. 
and they're like the discord like like your discord yeah, yeah, yeah. and like and like different slacks and stuff like i i feel like a lot of people have kind of moved to these more like chat-based apps exactly that we can and... moderate like i have a great mod team and like it's it's not like there are no nazis yelling at me like i don't want right. that anymore i just don't want that in my life and i also just like don't want people who don't like me yelling at me randomly even if they're like regular people who don't like me yeah or to be yelling at people that, which is what i that i don't like right? like i don't like yeah. right i don't even want to i don't want to see that like i don't even want to deal with that anymore i think it's brain poison and i'm just trying to to kick the habit but i am deeply addicted so we'll see how that goes you should hop into this river discord it's fun you'll get to talk i've you i've can... you know what i've i've been in it for Ever, like ever since we first yeah, talked, but like to, been when the it, episode but, yeah, drops, but... you should come chat with the the Zala gang. I'm sure they would love to chat. Definitely, definitely. Well, thank you again so much for being my guest. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at Cerebrocast. You can follow me on Twitter at Dream of Organon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes plus links to the Discord server, the merch store, and much much more at Cerebrocast.com. Next week's episode will feature, finally, I've had to reschedule it a couple times, but it's my fault, not his, Khaldun Khalil on Amal Farouk, the Shadow King. I'm excited about that one. It's going to be weird because he only has like a couple stories, but mostly I really want to dig deep with Khaldun on just the depiction of Arab people in this genre and how the Shadow King is the big or example of a lot of different complicated things. Then Nola Fow joins me for Longshot. Josh Trujillo joins me for Forge. Those two, I think you can still send questions for, but quite honestly, guys, I've got a ton of them. So please only if it's like a burning, urgent question, because I've already got dozens for each of them. And then as of last episode, I have announced the slate to follow Stephen Adewell on Sebastian Shaw, Jason Lowe on Jubilee, Holly Raymond on Jamie Braddock, and Chuck Austin on Annie Gazakanian. Questions are open for all four of those. Cerebrocast at gmail.com. Please send separate emails if you want to send questions for multiple characters. And thank you so much for the support, everybody. And thank you also all the kind words about last week's episode with Kyat and Klein. That was a really special one, and it's clearly struck a chord with a lot of people, and I am grateful for that. And I know that Kyat is extremely grateful because she was nervous about sharing all of that stuff, and I'm just glad that we provided a space, all of us, where she could do that, particularly as we go into Thanksgiving this week. You know, thinking about the struggles of indigenous people around the world is, I think, really important. I am just grateful that I had that opportunity. And so thank you all for, for being so kind about that episode because I was nervous about tackling all of that really complicated stuff. So I'm glad that people seem to think we did a good job. And I hope we did a good job tackling the Irish stuff in this episode because while I have more of a leg to stand on with it, it is extremely complicated. <laughs> and so thank you, Owen, for helping me navigate some of that. Yeah, yeah, same, same. For $5 a month at the House of Zaladin tier at patreon.com slash rebrocast, you can get an ad-free version of every episode as soon as they go up, plus exclusive access to the secret files, bonus episodes, including the Claremont Marathon, which will return as soon as my voice does, and the upcoming series Worrying About It, where I untangle some of the more confusing plots in the history of the X-Men, plus other bonus episodes as they come down the pipe. I've still got stuff coming, I, I promise. There, I've talked about things in the past that are definitely still coming. Until next time, everybody, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your support, and bye. Bye, everybody. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. The only hope is 
X-Men. <laughs>